When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. are looking at a remarkable idea, an idea that has intrigued and attracted and literally thrilled thousands upon thousands of men, women, and children. And you, my friends, are about to witness this idea become a reality, for this is the story of the miracle sea in the desert. And welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation. First time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a very different kind of show, a place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. Live and direct right now on the TuneIn Radio app. Search End of Days and you'll find the podcast version of this program. This is a great time to introduce a whole new network under a whole different era here on End of Days, the Michael Deacon program. Once again, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. Greeting boys and girls, it feels fantastic to be here yet again before all of you here tonight under a new umbrella. I want to welcome everyone out there on the LNM Radio Network. Thank you to you boys and girls out there doing an amazing job. Now, tonight will be a bit of a rattlesnake. We have a... Tremendous show for you this evening. In a moment, we will be talking to Tolik. He is a Earth human representative of the Andromeda Council. I believe he is patiently waiting. Let's bring him in. Tolik, are you alive? Yes, I am. My goodness, Tolik, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for joining me here tonight. And I apologize for all the inconvenience. So many different hiccups here tonight. But I'm glad we are once again here together under pale moonlight. <laughs> Welcome to the world of technology. Sometimes oh, it works. Terrible, <laughs> I know. Sometimes it doesn't. My God. And, of course, this is not your first rodeo here on the program, Tolik. However, many new ears and new souls are out there tuning in now. I thought we could kind of go over your background a bit here. Let's go back to your roots, Tolik. Wow. Um Are you talking about my... My relatively recent adult life experiences since contact, those your, kinds of things. Your other life. My other life. Before um, this one. Being a young kid, getting educated, going to school and starting work, that kind of stuff? Correct. Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> um, born and raised in New England, 
Um, graduated in 1980 with a political science degree and a specialization in public administration. Never worked for the government one day in my life. <laughs> um, I, I came out of school when uh, Carter was coming out and Reagan was coming in. They were slashing government jobs all over the place. And about a year and a half, two years later, I uh, was having a conversation with a buddy of mine and he said, Hey, you know, I, I know that you're not doing what you'd like to, but if somebody said, here's a wish list, tell me what you'd like to do. Now, keep in mind, I'm like 21 or 22 at the time. I said, uh, okay, I'd like to work for a major corporation because they have money and, and I'd, I'd rather get paid some pretty good money. Um, I'd like to travel quite a bit and, and get out of New England. And I'd like some, uh, some corporate training under my belt so that I can say that, you know, I, I had a solid start. A week and a half later, he showed up and he's like, Hey, I got just the thing for you. He slaps down the newspaper and he said, uh, Cigna, which is the merger of CG and INA is, uh, pulling in a number of people. They want recent college grads, uh, that can travel the countryside for a minimum commitment of about two and a half years. You'd go to all the major cities. They'd train you and ship you out. I'm like, done. Who do I talk to? <laughs> so to make a long story short, I did a whole bunch of research. Keep in mind, the web didn't exist then. Did a whole bunch of research. Got into the interview. I knew more about this, the merger between CG and INA than the person interviewing me. And she said, okay, all right, all right, fine. You're hired. <laughs> Meet us back here uh, for training and another, I think it was like three to four weeks and then after that, we had to hop in a plane, and I was almost six months in Atlanta. Um, she's another five or six months in L.A., and then she's uh, Detroit, San Francisco, um, Chicago, a whole bunch of cities around the country for four years. That's how my life started. And the uh, the, the what at that time you could, you know you could certainly call that the healthcare industry. And then I worked for a succession of uh, smaller and smaller healthcare software firms doing installation training and marketing support. So you lived a very normal life, in other I words. I did. Yeah, very, I, really, very I really did. And yet, in some ways, it wasn't normal because when I was in uh, – I, I think I'm in my prime now, but <laughs> for the sake of this conversation. When I was in my physical prime of my 20s, uh, instead of settling down and, and doing some consistent dating and, and hopefully meeting somebody and get married, I was flying and traveling around the country and then around the world for the work I was doing. Uh, I got out of that semi-technical track because though I loved the travel experience and meeting people around the country and meeting people around the world, uh, that was not my forte. I can't write a lick of code and I'm barely technically knowledgeable. Uh, I found that uh, I was far better suited to be working with people uh, and, and, and a one-on-one, one-on-two. The numbers didn't matter, but that I was in some kind of business development or marketing capacity. And I ended up completely switching over to uh, a long-term sales cycle. Make a long story short, I uh, I went to work for what would be called uh, an exhibit, a custom trade show exhibit manufacturer. Now I'd come out of the computer industry, specifically the healthcare software industry. So I absolutely knew what the needs were of computer hardware or software companies. So 
I went to work for this firm. This guy said, well, why should I hire you? You never sold before. I said, well, because I come from the computer industry and I can knock on some doors like Digital Research Incorporated, uh, Hewlett Packard, Sun Microsystems, Proteon Computer, Asus Computer, a whole bunch of them. He said, okay. I said, I know what I'm doing. I may be new. I may be young, but I will produce for you. And within 14 months, I had closed business with Hewlett Packard, Sun Microsystems, and Digital Research Corporation, totaling about a million point four in 14 months. Uh, my closure rate was really high because, quite honestly, I didn't sell. I, When I met people, when I sat down with them, I wanted to find out what their needs were, what their marketing direction was. I wanted to make sure that the team of designers I had in back of me could design something that we would specifically fit where these people were headed. And so I uh, I listened, and there was always dialogue. And I would usually come back with at least three designs. We'd narrow it down to a combination of B and C or A and B. And by the time it came for them to sign a contract, they were so comfortable from working with me that signing a contract was a no-brainer. So you found all this success, and life was going well for you. And what exactly happened to you, Tolik, that made you – arrive at the thoughts and conclusions you have today, what exactly ah. was it that shaped you? Ah, wow, really good question. Um, there's an in-between story, and the in-between story is uh, with, with all of those experiences and all of the travel that I experienced, as you've heard, I got a chance to see the not only American West, the American Southwest. Right. Or, yeah, there are, you know, Dallas included um, Las Vegas. There are a lot of computer industry trade shows, conventions in Vegas. And so I had an opportunity during quiet time to explore the American West and really fell in love with it. So when I got finished my four years with Cigna and then subsequent years with those additional healthcare software firms, I made a decision at the end of 1990 that I wanted to stop living in the very busy industrial Northeast and create a different life for myself. So I took out a map, I literally took out a map of the U.S. I used a, a pencil. It was a reduced copier size. And I crossed out everything except for the state of Arizona and Colorado. I arranged meetings in Colorado. Nothing flew. I then arranged meetings in uh, Arizona, did a bunch of research. I set up 15 meetings, uh, went to, uh, I flew myself out to Arizona. And within the course of one week, I actually attended 14 of the 15 meetings, one person couldn't meet me over the course of five days. And I secured two interviews, from, uh, sorry, two offers from a company and from uh, two companies in Phoenix and one offer from a company in Tucson. Uh, they were building a new team. The manager from the Tucson operation was a straw, a tall, uh, uh, bald, strapping, life-filled Irishman with just a hearty smile and a twinkle in his eye. And I said, I'm going to work for you because I'm going to work for you. <laughs> I, you know, you're the kind of person though I don't work for. You're building a fun team. I certainly like the community of Tucson better than the big city of Phoenix. I'm moving here. And so I was oh, yes. back out there living in Tucson within three weeks. And that was the end of 1990. And subsequent to that, um, three, three years later in August of 1993, 
I, as we've talked about a couple of times, I, uh, I had an experience where I was in my condo 14 miles north of the center of town, uh, living up against the Catalina Mountains. And I had ex- an experience which was decidedly different, but essentially, uh, a gentleman who I now know as the commander of the primary Andromeda Council biosphere and all the other biospheres for that matter, he contacted me, um, very much like you and I are speaking right now. Uh, in this case, it was telepathy, and he basically woke me up at like 3.33 or 3.34 in the morning, and he said, I need you. He's like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, do you know what time it is? You just woke me up. Yeah, I know what time it is, and I need you to get dressed, get in your get in your vehicle, drive down the highway, and there's a road, a little dirt road just before the San Javier exit. I need you to turn off that dirt dirt road, go through the desert, about a third to a half of a mile, you'll come through a small wash. You'll pop up through the other side and you'll see my craft sitting there. And this is a very compressed story, but basically I did what he asked. And as soon as I saw him, I recognized him right away. Michael, think of uh when you went to school and you had some buddies, maybe that you hadn't seen in years. Right. That's what that's what it was like with this guy. Ah, uh, okay. So you felt a familiar presence. Yeah, absolutely. I I, ah. I traded in my uh Black Nissan Maxima leather loaded moonroof, you know, brand new. I traded that thing in when I moved to Arizona and I bought a uh, 1984 Ford Bronco 2 with four wheel drive. <laughs> I'm like, I'm moving to the desert. I'm going to get a desert vehicle. So it, it handled the desert just fine. So I hopped out of the vehicle and I parked about 100 feet away from where he was. I saw him. He was standing outside the craft. Think of, uh, uh, like one of the, Billy Meyer, Switzerland, Pleiades, Beamship 2 crafts kind of look like that. Externally, it looked to be 35, 37 feet in diameter. When I went inside, the thing looked like 150 feet in diameter, which was shocking. Yeah, I but, can't even imagine yeah. what you were thinking when you actually saw a physical craft. I, you know, I um, it didn't, quite honestly, it really didn't bother me. It didn't bother you. I, I, no, and it didn't. And here's here's the reason why. Um, I, I haven't, I've never never talked about this much, but I think like a lot of kids in in my generation. Now, keep in mind, at that moment in time, I was probably like 32 or 33. I was a lot younger. Right. And and um, I never really followed. I mean, I caught a couple of episodes, uh, but I never really followed the original Star Trek. When Star Trek: The Next Generation came on, I watched a few episodes, and I was I was really impressed with what I was watching, but more, more importantly, I was impressed with, um, the gentleman who is, uh, Patrick Stewart, the actor who played the role of Captain Picard. And what I was most impressed by his behavior and his actions as a captain was how committed he was to doing the right thing with regard to the people he was responsible for and or if they encountered people on various planets. His commitment was always to take the time necessary to consider all of the issues at hand and make the right decisions so that that people would come first. And I remember thinking back then, that's the kind of man that I want to be someday when when I mature and and become. So you saw him as this uh, authoritarian figure and you felt this very comfortable presence around this being. Yeah, uh, uh, in terms of the character of Picard, I didn't think of his, him as authoritarian. I thought of him as um, 
a mature, grounded human male who put people first. A wise man. That, yeah, that's that's what impressed me over all of the decisions that that character made throughout this the episode and uh, the different episodes in the, in the series. Understood. And, and I'm sorry to cut you off there, but prior to all these events going on in your life, were you ever interested in science fiction or? Uh, well, that's that's great. that's the point. Mm-hmm. I, I I know I was spending some time on the topic, but um, I think having watched th- that Star Trek Next Genera- Generation series um, was was maybe the beginning of the the, the the triggering, the triggering of my awakening, if you will, because that, that series started in like 87. And so prior to that, I really, I, I, I as a kid, I, I watched, uh, stuff like any other kids do on Saturdays, you know, Warner Brothers TV and, but I was never really a, uh, a sci-fi fan per se. Yeah. You weren't so, exactly that into it then. No, I really wasn't. I see. I, 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 yeah, I, I really wasn't. It's not until I, I started to watch the next, the next generation. And I've, I've been, of course, a sci fan subsequent, subsequent to that. But, um, the experience that I had with this man who is the commander of the primary Andromeda Council Biosphere and all the others, uh, like I said, when I met him, it was like I had seen an old buddy from college. And I immediately felt comfortable with him. And I knew that at that moment when I met him, I was going to be safe. There was no question. I've had since, since then, I've had numerous conversations telepathically, uh, and in other forms with him, with Ambassador Tonka, who is responsible from the Andromeda Council to and for the planet Earth. Uh, there's a diplomat by the name of Maka who's become a very good friend. Uh, Vice Chairwoman Tanya. These are people that I've had extensive communications with, including uh, uh, an interdimensional communicator by the name of Andarine. So I, that's all happened since that first trip back in time in 1993 to rural Kentucky, West Virginia. And we took that trip three times. And you weren't at all freaked out by any of these experiences, Tolik? No. I would have been a little bit worried. Maybe no. I wouldn't return. <laughs> no. no, and I, I, I don't have any explanation for it other than the fact that, as I mentioned, the first time I saw this man, I felt very comfortable, like this was somebody I knew. And as I learned later, one of the reasons why I felt so comfortable is that this man's name that I mentioned and everyone else, um, I had known for many, many, many years. There's a reason why I was comfortable. It's because I knew these people. I see. And so I didn't know them from experiences here on this planet, but from other experiences. Right. Prior. Yeah. And so we watched a family of four on three separate occasions. And I actually was given an opportunity to stay and be their guide during that time frame of the 1840s. And my intuition told me, I think I've got some important work to do back on Earth. I'd like to complete this life, however long it lasts. He said, okay. And so here I am, and here we are. It's now 2018. Yes, and it's been a tremendous time for you in terms of all the recent developments that are going on. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in the terms of 
there were new developments of a mysterious radio signal, well, multiple radio signals being detected by astronomers this week. I wanted to have it being shut down. Did you ever see that bit of news today? Uh, no, no, I didn't. Um, you didn't? No, I, I, <laughs> my goodness. I am so, I am so busy. Yeah, I know. Shame on me. I am so busy with my life pre- preparing for, so A, being responsible that I'm responsible, being responsible to the things I'm responsible for every day. B, preparing for major events that are coming up in my life that I, many times I don't know what's going on unless I ask the guys upstairs. And one indicator of that was, uh, at the end of 2015, I asked them about the then standing president, Barack Obama. And I said, I have a sense that there's a major change coming. And they basically said, mm-hmm, that's right. And I said, tell me about this man they call Barack Obama and, and what's going to happen after his presidency. And I'll kind of paraphrase what they told me. They said, he will be the last president of his type really? that has come from the system. Okay. And they said, also, um, this new president that you have, he will be unlike anything you've ever seen before. Now, I've said this publicly since 2015, but it, is, it bears worth repeating. They said he will come from outside of the system. And he will be an agent for change and he won't be predictable. And his mission is to break down all of the redundancies of what you call a government. That's interesting that you say that because I was going to ask you about the topic of a paradigm shift. It seems like it's a prominent concept, often revisioned and told time and time again. And I'm just curious right now, it seems like we have definitely undergone a huge paradigm shift just, just in the last, what, five years. Yeah. Yeah. But even, I mean, think, think about the upheaval, if you will, and the, uh, <laughs> parenthetically, the feathers that have been ruffled, all the hairs on the, on the, on the necks of the, the pissed off politicians. Why? Because there's a man who's been appointed by the name of Trump who comes from outside of the system, who is a contractor and a developer. He's not elegant. He speaks like a contractor. For the most part, he doesn't care which toes he steps on. He was brought in to do a job, and that's to clean up, break down, revise, make change, break down more again. We're going to see continued years of change like this, radical change. And I don't mean I don't mean radical as in, the way that people usually use the word radical, but in terms of substantial, we'll continue to see substantial change and restructuring of the government. And and one of the reasons is that as a system, it no, no longer serves the people to the people's best interests. Ah, yes. And I'm so glad we're having this discussion. I had no clue we were going to go right into this, but since we are on this topic, so many questions jump in my mind. It's all right. And, you know, one of those is in America, again, in the past maybe five, six years, there's that number, six, six and five, very important numbers, by the way. Um, Mm. The last six years, let's just say, there's been a war on masculinity. I want to know if you believe these 
these energies that we have, men and women, do you believe that these are out of balance? Uh, let me address these one at a time. Go ahead. A war on masculinity. Well, I think that's one way to describe what's going on. I certainly feel that there's been, you know, every, every single industry, whether it's entertainment, uh, in form, in the form of television or movies, uh, the perfume industry, um, uh, clothing, they all have ways to program and to, to uh, uh, initiate cycles. I think it's no mistake. And this may be subtle, but it's really not that subtle. I think it's no mistake that about two or three years ago ish, <laughs> yeah. somebody thought it would be cool for a man to wear a shirt that would be normally tucked in over his pants. That creates for better or for worse. That creates a more feminine look. Men were men. Men had never done this before, at least in modern history. That's not something men had done. Right. Only women do that. And it's subtle, but I, you know, I, you see this time honestly, and time again, though you see men, they're very emotional. They behave like a woman. Now these are just facts. You could just see this on TV. You, you see how men are nowadays. Uh, the, 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 I don't the, watch TV. Well, <laughs> so, you don't have to but, watch TV. You could just see it even on the internet, the way different things are presented. It seems like the male and female uh, balance is just a little, just not really, not really there anymore. Everything's so, so just, my goodness. Let me address this from, if you will, let's, let's take the camera lens, if you will, parenthetically, and back out quite a bit. Let's look at um, not decades, not hundreds of years. Let's look at thousands of years of male patriarchal domination of a variety of societies on this planet. Now, you could exchange the word male for ink or round or tea kettle. I, it really doesn't matter what the word is. It's about the energy that's been used, how it's been used, how the power has been abused, how women have been subjugated and that's demeaned. True. Right. And the list goes on and on and on. So if we agree that that's true, and then we also agree, if you will, that there is this area of space that we're traveling through, which has a higher frequency. And maybe it there's this cause and effect such that the time of the sacred feminine is coming in. Mm. Maybe it's true that in order for change to happen, it's going to swing way over to the other side first. It'll get really feminine for a while before it starts coming back into balance. We're not even, we're not even all the way over to the feminine side yet. There's so much work that needs to be done in terms of creating a peaceful, balanced society. Now, each person, of course, has their own definition of what is Drama or not drama, depending on his or her own evolution. But, right, right. You know, <laughs> I think that what we will see and the place that we need to come to as not only a global society, but whether we're talking about Europe, uh, Indonesia, Australia, 
Africa and all of the countries there, North America, South the globe. In order for us to be accepted anytime in the future as a potential partner in a brotherhood, if you will, and sisterhood of planets, if we're going to be aligned with benevolent societies and species, we have to be peaceful first and we have to stop warring on each other. Yeah, that's the, the, that's the conundrum the, the, right there. Yeah, the, the, I, I believe that the end of dominant male irrational warring behavior must come. It has to come to an end. And there's nothing wrong with what people might consider to be um, feminine energy traits like understanding, thoughtfulness, uh, compassion, empathy, sympathy. I think that those are simply traits of good beings. And, you know, whether, and they you, are. whether you're human or something else. Right. Some of those traits are just common sense to have for your fellow man. But the yeah. emotional so, side of, fellow yeah. man, fellow mm-hmm. woman, fellow anything, I've, um, I've, <laughs> it may seem, it, I, this is not trivial. I think it's important. I, uh, now first of all, I will admit to killing mosquitoes and flies. Oh, how dare you? Yes, however. <laughs> Devil in disguise, I, this one here. Yes, yes. I have <laughs> say, I have saved moths. And, uh, caterpillars and butterflies. Um, I saved a dragonfly that was frying on the sidewalk in Florida in my last couple of months there. You're and like, he was, he looked like uh-huh. he, had, he had been hit by a train. Oh, like, no. Uh, and he was big. Uh, if from wingtip to wing, wingtip, this little dragonfly was probably about three and a half inches from wingtip to wingtip. So I found, I happened to be walking by a, uh, uh um, like a, like a drainage ditch and there were some wild trees down there. So I got a leaf. I slid the leaf under him. I walked back down to the drainage ditch where there was some water. I put him on a little branch and he kind of like Boop, got into the water. He's like, Arr. he was okay. I watched him for a little while, but that story is not about me. That story is about, uh, empathy, yes. uh, compassion, compassion for others. That's all it is. Right. Understood. Understood. And going back to the whole paradigm shift, everyone thought, well, not everyone, but a lot of people had the misconception that something would happen back in 2012. The mainstream media jumped on the craze and lots of people made money during that time period. And I'm curious though, since we are talking about, again, energy, um, and I'm, you know, it makes me wonder, what do you have to say about those folks out there that don't believe any of these things? What if, what if someone doesn't understand, not even understand, what if they just don't care uh, about extraterrestrial life and any of these things? Uh, will they be able to experience ascension, Tolik? Um, well, first we'd have to define ascension. Uh, and if we define ascension, then we probably have to put it in the same category as the higher dimensional shift, the transformational shift, the event, the new earth. All, I think all of those, that nomenclature, all those names fits in that box called ascension. Right. But what about the folks that don't believe about any of these things we're talking about? Will they make it too? Ah, good point. Okay. Um, 
I can only share with you what's been shared with me by the guys that I've been talking to for now seven plus years. Yes. And essentially what they've said, and I'll be, I'll be brief with this one. What they've said is if you're someone who is at his or her core, a good, kind, compassionate person, and you're living your life as anyone would, just trying to have a good life, uh, you're kind to your fellow man or woman, neighbors, friends, family, and you're just going along in life. When that moment of the event or the shift happens, any of these kinds of people will simply evolve with the planet. Because what I've been told very consistently since early 2014 is that the moment of the shift or the moment of ascension, as some people call it, oh, yeah. is not conditioned on when at all. Mm, okay. At, at all. It's not. It is conditioned on a number of events coalescing at a single moment. And I'll just list them really quick on the, the, uh, the human physiological side of the equation. When our human, when our organic 3D human race, as we walk around in these organic bodies with minds and hearts and compassion that we have, when we reach the pinnacle, the peak of our development, I'm not talking about technology. I'm talking about 3D human awareness. Our evolution. Our evolution. The, the peak, the, 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 our greatest potential as a 3D human. Yeah, yeah. All right. So let's call Amazing. that side A. Side B. When a number of Earth changes, including um, um, volcanoes popping off, land subsiding, different wave events, uh, as this planet and the solar system passes through this en- this higher vibrational energy of space, as I believe NASA recently acknowledged, when the peak of those Earth changes hit, and essentially this planet births herself as a new world, that's when the moment of um, ascension, transformational shift, dimensional shift, whatever you want to call it, that's when that's when the shift will take place. And I, I am under, I am under the understanding that we are going to get some help, uh, likely a few months before that peak happens. We'll start to see a number of ships in the sky. Some of them will be Andromeda Council ships. Others will be non-aligned, benevolent people that care about us. Um, and they're going to stick around. Uh, my people have said, they're going to be around for at least 10 to 12 years. What we call today 10 to 12 years. They'll be around at least that long to help us get reestablished. Uh, new technologies, new communities, new ways of living, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, you know, this, ever since I've had these experiences and I've learned what I've learned, the more that I learned that this coming experience is not external to us. It's not about the fact that we have brothers and sisters out in the cosmos. It's about our our evolution and who are we going to decide to be? How are we gonna how are we going to live our our lives today, tomorrow and the day after that? It's about us. I and, agree. And yes. one of one of the one of the biggest things I've learned in this process of getting older, of maturing, is the process of going 
from my head. And matter of fact, Alison, Alison, Alison Cohen and I were having this conversation just recently. And not only going into, but sinking into my heart and doing the best job possible to make decisions from my heart. Because I, I, I've had enough life experience. I know the differences between right and wrong. But it's getting my head and my brain out of the way. And my heart knows what to do. My brain's great for thinking. But to make decisions, whether they're really important or not so important, I use my heart. Understood. And yeah. I, I, I'm talking too much. That's okay. I think that's where we ought to be. We that's ought to okay. be in our hearts and figure out how we can help help others. Help and, I, and I agree full, fully with that. And Tolik, you believe in the soul, obviously, correct? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, if I asked you to locate the soul, where would you show me it may be? Uh, let's say for each person, I'll, I'll do my best trying to use uh, uh, terms, complex terms. Yeah, this is very complicated when you discuss the location of the human soul. Lots of people have different not notions really. <laughs> of where it may be or where it may not be. Yeah. Go ahead, Tolly. Yeah, it's actually pretty easy. Um, and I've used this. I've used this before. People are going to chuckle and laugh at me, but it's all right. Think of a beautiful apple pie or an extra large pizza, and let's call that extra large pizza your oversoul. Uh, a piece of that pizza, people in this industry would call it a fractal, decides that it wants to experience life in a variety of forms, and it says, "I'm going to planet Earth. I can get a lot of a lot of experiences in a really short time down there." So just before the human baby pops out of mom, uh, a fractal of that soul enters that child and he or she lives an earth life. That's that long <laughs> because my understanding and I'm getting to the answer, the complete answer. It's okay. My understand, my understanding is that, uh, at least with my own experience, the guys from the guys I've been communicating with, they know me and I have asked the question, well, how long have been coming? Have I been coming here to Earth? They said you've been traveling to your planet for seventy-five thousand years. We kept you here an extra twenty-five thousand because you need more training. I'm like, thanks, guys. <laughs> so in any case, I I asked them. Oh, it was three or four years ago, I said I, I've been asking this question. Apparently, I've been a student of time for for years, for lifetimes. But I've been asking the question wrong. I'm going to ask it the right way. You guys, from your perspective out there, when I've been traveling to Earth for 75,000 years and living all these different Earth lives, how long does it feel to you guys, using Earth terminology, that I've been gone? Give me an, an Earth approximate. He went, hmm, about a year and a half. You'd call it like a year and a half business trip. I went, what? <laughs> so why is that relevant? Well, it's relevant because our oversoul exists in the cosmos, and a, a, a fractal of that soul exists in your human body, but it exists in the cosmos in a variety of dimensions. Are you 3D? Yes. 4D? Yes. 5D? Yes. 6D? Yes. All at the same time. That's what I've come to learn. We're having simultaneous life experiences so that each pizza slice, if you will, has a completely different life experience, one of them being here on Earth. Understood. How's that? How's that's that a good, answer? great answer. Great answer. I have someone with a belief that the soul, in my opinion, is somewhere located around 
the fabled pineal gland, your mythical third eye. Hmm. Uh, I don't think in it's, terms of where it's, it lodges itself in the human body. Right. I don't think it's exactly right in your third eye, but I think it's right in that area, the passenger side of of that location. I think that's kind of where it dwells. I, that's certainly possible. Um, I've been shown images of the human soul fractal being far bigger than the than the body that we correct that we have that we use and. That can certainly be explained if you or any, any of your listeners go to conference, conferences. And I see, I've seen hundreds of people come back from conferences and they've got their new alleged smartphones. And I'm like, look at these photos of these orbs. Look at these orbs. These blue and orange and yellow and purple. Well, I quite honestly, nine out of ten times, those little orbs that are showing up in smartphones are little round balls of compressed life. Energy that is life. And I'm aware of at least from the middle level of fifth dimension up, people, beings can compress their energy and travel the star systems simply by compressing their energy into a little light ball. So if it can compress itself into a ball that's like the size of a pool pool ball or the size of a golf ball or the size of a marble, then sure, it could sit to the right of the pineal gland. (laughs) But that's why it could, because... At our pure form, this fractal, we are energy. We are light. That's exactly what we are. Yes, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on human origins and, of course, your thoughts on Zachariah Sitchin. Was he accurate? Um, I, I Quite honestly, I didn't study Sitchin. They're, they're, um, I'm not a researcher. I have friends that are researchers that know an enormous amount of information. Um, most of the information that I've been sharing with people is knowledge that's been experiential. What I've learned from my guys that I talked to, the conversations I have, the images that they've showed me, um, other information other people have shared with me. Uh, in terms of the human form, I can tell you a few things. Uh, the people where, uh, as an example, the commander of the, uh, the primary biosphere, uh, Ambassador Tonka, Diplomat Maka, these guys, uh, me, originally, we experienced life on the planet Dakote, which is one of four planets that revolves around the Tigeta star, which is in the Pleiades. And it's literal. You can look at a star map and you'll see Tegeta listed. If you were to think of the map of the Pleiades as a clock, Tegeta would sit like around one or two o'clock in the upper right-hand corner. Those people, in their original human form, they came from the Lyra system originally. That's where most humans came from. Uh, have we been messed with? Uh, was there genetic manipulation, tweaking? Were reptilians and Sirius B star system folks involved in the genetic manipulation of proto-humans and early humans on Earth? Absolutely. Yeah, it certainly uh, seems I, I, like it. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm not an authority on how that happened, but I, I can say that it certainly has happened. I think that we're genetically tweaked with all the time. Yeah, I believe the DNA was definitely altered a long time ago. There's a woman that I know who goes by the name of Tashina, and you know, with the advent of uh, ancestry and, and a couple others, they're able to 
scientists are able to look pretty closely at, at DNA structure and hers is uh, 80% off planet. They can't identify it. She knows who she is. She knows where she comes from. She's originally from the Arcturus star system. 20% of her human DNA is Earth-based. Yeah, that's so strange. But then at the same time, it's also very unusual when you also feel very grounded to Earth. And then you also feel this deep connection to the cosmos, which is something I've been feeling lately. To be honest with you, I I feel like I am one with just the Earth. But usually, well, I shouldn't say usually, I should say nowadays, I feel I am connected to the cosmos. Yeah, um I, uh, this is, this is an absolute, I've, I've had the benefit and the blessing of traveling not only this country, but the world. And this is an incredibly, incredibly beautiful, beautiful planet. It really is. It is, yes. Um, whether you're up in the pine forests or Niagara Falls or the Atlantic Ocean or Pacific Ocean or down in Australia or the high desert of Arizona where I am right now, it, it's just strikingly beautiful. And there are other planets that are just as beautiful across the cosmos. But, um, I, you know, it's funny. You asked me early on in this conversation about how and why I felt comfortable talking to this man and why it didn't bother me. Right. I, I'll tell you this. I've, I love this beautiful planet, but I'm not, I'm not from here. I've never felt like I belonged here when I was a kid walking around. I'm like, uh, this doesn't make sense. There are people like threatening to shoot missiles at each other and kill each other. We've had like, I don't know, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Gulf War One, Gulf War Two. These people are crazy. It was, it's, it's abnormal for me for people to attack each other and kill each other. So is this a beautiful planet? Yes. Are we pretty messed up and have we been manipulated and messed up emotionally for years? Mm-hmm. We sure have. Oh, yes. Do I feel connected to the cosmos? Yeah, I do. I got a bunch of friends and relatives up in the stars on a number of different planets. So you know, it would make sense. I think we all, I think we all do. Um, I was right. told, you know, I was told as part of my own, my own training that as I think the number is about 75%. 75% of the souls, now we're talking about the soul fractals, living human lives, about 75% of us are from other star systems. And about 25% are some of the original way, way, way back, you know, Lemurian, early Lemurian proto-humans that have been stuck here for a long time. They want to leave. They're looking forward to this ascension thing. <laughs> Right. See, and that further helps my theory and many other theories. But one theory in particular is panspermia, which basically is how we came to be. We definitely came from asteroids and comets, in my opinion. I, I truly feel that is how we got here. I believe we might have even been sent here. Well, the, the first humans that were created to have life and essentially serve star people were created. This, this planet was terraformed. It had the essentials for life, but as an example, um, I've been told that grapes that make wine 
Grapes came from the Cassiopeia system, that constellation, if you will. Uh, sequoia trees and redwoods are not from this planet. They were brought here. And I could give you a list of a whole host of others, but this was a terraformed planet. And life in many variances and forms yeah, was brought here. And, and some some of what I'm saying to you came from a conversation I was ha- having with uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Wendell Stevens back in the mid-1990s. Oh, yes. I wouldn't call myself a close friend, but I was a friend of Wendell Stevens, and we were having a cup of coffee on a Saturday morning. And I was asking him some questions, and he just stopped, and he paused, and he looked at me and said, because we were talking about the, the 125 or 26 different books that he had written on contact with people from different star systems with Earth humans. And he, he gave me essentially the same, same information that I just shared. But the way he said it was, do you realize how many, as an example, diverse species, uh, the, uh, the genus, and all the different branches of the insects, the fish, the animals, the humans, birds, there are on this planet. I'm like, yeah, that number's enormous. He said, well, it's no mistake. Many of these beings were brought here. This, this beautiful planet was meant to be a, a, a developmental lab, a repository for life. And he said that is also one of the reasons why there are so many races still visit here. Because when things go extinct on their planet, they come to get some more of what they need. Either they'll take cattle or goats. They'll be crossbreeding. Of course, you've heard of hybrids. All of that's been going on for a long, long time. Long time. Now that the whole gray hybrid thing is relatively new, but um, this, he, matter of fact, Wendell said, I'm not even so sure that man was supposed to inhabit, that, that this many people were supposed to inhabit this planet. It was supposed to be a virtual um, garden, a repository of life. I was like, wow. I was blown away. I am that. blown away, yeah. Yeah, that 20-minute conversation. My goodness, yes. And, of course, every time we get into these sort of subjects, one of the questions that is often presented to me when I finish the show and I always get up, I always get upset and say, why don't you ever call into the program and ask this question? But one that I often hear is why hasn't there been another mass sighting? And once again, that reminds me of the Phoenix lights incident back in 97. Um, do you believe that was one of ours or do you believe that was from somewhere else? Um, I, I, have an answer for you, and because the source is a friend of mine, I'm gonna I'm gonna withhold his name. What he essentially said was that shipped, sorry, that ship essentially uh, dialed a number and came through, for lack of better words, a stargate in the sun, and it popped out here, popped out in the American Southwest. And it was just one of those, you know, I don't know if it was purposefully that it purposefully dialed this particular area, but it, it came through a wormhole. And the, the sun is a stargate. There are craft that go in and out of the sun all the time. And essentially all they have to do at the moment they plan to enter the sun, 
they have to dial up to, if you, I'm using a metaphor, but they have to dial or key in a specific set of numbers that equate to the particular point that they're going to enter the sun. And as long as they're vibrating at the same rate as the sun, they just slip right through. The sun is not completely what we think it is at all. Um, but essentially that's what happened. And so that craft did come from another place and, um, it popped in here in the desert Southwest and took a trip. It was supposed to take some readings. Um, so yeah, uh, there's, there's, there's just, there's been so much going on on this planet. You know, if people, uh, you know, don't, I don't even take my word for it. Do, you know, do, do, do go onto uh, channels like the discovery channel or the history channel and look at, the frescoes on European walls with paintings. Look at the Egyptian pyramids. There are, geez, look at the petroglyphs that American Indians have in the, in the, in the Southwest. There are numerous references to people pointing to the stars, pointing to UFOs in the sky. Yeah. I think there's even one where in Egypt, which is thousands and thousands of years old, and there's a helicopter. <laughs> you know, there it is. Yeah, there's some the very strange hieroglyphics. Yeah. You know, so, mm-hmm. you know, this, this is, it's not a matter of whether we've been visited or not. It's really about, it really is about who are we as a species? What decisions are we going to make to better ourselves? How are we going to treat each other in the coming days and years? You know, can we even sit down and be rational when we don't agree? That's one of the hardest things that people, that people have, have to do. It's one of the biggest challenges ever. And uh, it's, it's actually embarrassing to see some of the screaming and shouting and abuse that people have laid out on each other. Yeah, people have, a, yeah, people have a lot of anger and hate. Yeah. It's, then those people, they're not going to make it. Yeah. When that moment of the shift comes, those people will simply, um, vanish. And they'll show up in another 3D world. Atolik, have you gotten rid of your anger? Um, that's a really good question. It I is. would have to say, yeah, I, I, and I'm pausing because I want to be, um, I want to be authentic and want to answer as honestly, uh, as humanly possible. And I appreciate that. Yeah. I, um, this is a bit of a story, but I'll keep it brief. In the late 1990s, I was in a relationship with a young woman. The relationship didn't make it, but the, the positive outcome of that was that I went through an enormous, tremendous amount of growth. And I was able to, with the help of a really good man, um, his name is Peter Galgano. He was probably one of the, the foremost, if you will, students of Gary Zukov at that time. And I was able to look very closely at all of my childhood pains and anxieties and fears, all of the pain or all of the heartfelt pain with broken relationships and, and all the stuff that we all experience as kids and teenagers and into our twenties as we're growing up. Um, I, I, I cleared all of that out. I cleaned all of that out. So you forgave your parents. <laughs> oh boy. Well, you, you I have the real to. Questions, have they forgiven me? Well, have, yeah, well, right, but you do have to forgive them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that is, that is the, the process of healing is first forgive self. You know, we got to stop being so hard on ourselves. Uh, forgive others. For those people who are out there who have 
hearts that hurt. I'm using metaphors that are bleeding. Right. And you're, you're, you're in emotional pain almost every day. Find people who use a variety of modalities that will work for you that can help you release the stored up energy of those years of pain, emotional pain and abuse. Because make no mistake, when you experience something and it's painful to you, that energy stays residual in the human body until you release it. Exactly. And I always say this all the time. You have to let go of that anger in your heart or else you will never be happy in life. It sounds very corny and cheesy. However, it's just a fact. And you could, you could live as a victim or live as a winner. The choice is yours. Yeah. I, um, I, I want to answer, like I said, I want to really answer your question. You honestly. could, you could answer do, any yeah, way you do, want. Do, this is an open, I, open I, discussion here. You're more than free to say okay. anything you want, my friend. <laughs> I just, I just like to be concise. Um, do I carry anger, the energy of anger inside of me? No. I don't think you do. No. Do I carry the energy? Do I carry the energy of fear inside of me? Absolutely not. Do I get angry from time to time? Yes. Do I get upset? From time to time. Yeah, you might call it righteous anger every once in a while when I like somebody pulls you know the wool over my eyes. Right, right. But what I purposely do my best at is to not direct my anger, even if the person has wronged me, I do my best not to lash out at him or her. I may not like what's going on, it may not agree with it, and it may really piss me off. And I may even, may even inform the person of why I'm angry, but I don't lash out at them. Right. And I think Gary Zukov would say that's a responsible way to live a self-responsible, authentic life. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to live the most authentic life that I can. Well said. And it is very difficult to let go of that anger. I still get angry at times, but then I pull myself back and think this is not the proper state of mind to be in. You have to let go of the anger, and once you let go of the anger, the fear goes away, the insecurities go away, and everything else becomes amazing. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, the times that I get upset these days is when, as an example, I will trust someone or I'll trust the situation, and it, you know, my antenna are pretty good these days, and it really happens to be. But when it does happen to me, I get pissed off because <laughs> I'm like, it's okay. you know, my, my time is valuable and everybody else's time is valuable. And I don't think any of us should be taken advantage of. No, that's and, a difficult part. Indeed. Yeah. So when I get taken advantage of, I'm pissed off. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> Perfectly normal to be upset. Yeah. But again, I do my best not to lash out at the person or the parties. That created that pissoffness in me. You know, yeah. I I own it. Yes, I own what that feels like, and it's it's up to me to be responsible how I'm going to handle that situation. But isn't it amazing how some people out there, society today, you say one thing that gets them mad, they could go on Twitter, for instance, and get you fired. Well, that's the yeah. Our our society has gone. I'm telling <laughs> it's, you, it's very yeah, it's backwards. Yeah, it really is, and it makes me worried. That the star people just will not come back because we're, we're just so awful to, towards each other. Maybe they checked out. Maybe they won't return. Um, it, it is, it is in our, again, this is only based on what I've been taught. 
It is certainly within our grasp and within our evolutionary destiny to be better than we are. And it's, it is possible. Now that doesn't mean that all 8 billion people on this planet will become emotionally mature. Some will, many won't, but it also doesn't mean that they'll be able to continue to learn those kinds of lessons on this planet because the higher up you go in, in frequency, uh, as a drastic comparison, the, the energy of spitefulness, meanness, hatred, anger, killing, uh, torture, all of that stuff will not be able to exist on that planet simply because it's incompatible with the energetic rate of what this planet will become. So those things will go away. Just Very great answer. And, of course, there is also an event that's happening over on your side of heaven in Sedona, Arizona, the transformational shift event. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've been uh, – this will be the third year that I'm producing the Transformational Shift event conference here in the U.S. I uh, I had one small gathering and then two conferences in Australia last year, in October of last year, which was pretty amazing. But, yeah, this is year three. Uh, this year I'm being joined by Joe Anthony, uh, a very uh, warm, intelligent, gifted man who's also an astrologer. He lives up here. And uh, his organization is called Planets Within, so we're collaborating. And this year's conference is called The Great Awakening, Messages from Our Galactic Family. And it's going to happen the weekend of September the 28th through the 30th. So, yeah, two weekends, <laughs> two weeks from now. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. I went and looked up some of the videos and guests that you will be talking to, and I was blown away. Some of these people I've never heard of, and I found them to be incredibly interesting and fascinating. And I have to say, I, I feel terrible that I can't make it out there, Tolik, and, and do a live show like I would just absolute, absolutely would just die to do out there. Because that would be just a whole new experience to go out to Sedona. And I have to be honest with you, Tolik, I always thought in my mind, Sedona just kind of breeds a strange type of people. <laughs> And then later on in life, I became that strange type of people. Yeah, there you go. By the way, no dying on my watch. (laughs) I know. I'll I'll stay alive. I am well well accustomed to the heat. I live out here in the desert. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. yeah, uh, um, Michael Sala is uh, a friend of mine. Right. And so – and Michael's presented here before in pastures. We don't have the Michael Salas and the Corey Goods. at this conference, but we certainly have people that are equal in knowledge and in spirit. And, uh, they include people like Clifford Mahoudi, who is a Zuni elder. And he's got a wealth of experience. Uh, when he was busy in his working life, he was an engineer. He was not only an engineer, he was responsible as liaison between all of the Indian, the native tribes, and the federal government, he happened to be in position when RECLA, CERCLA, Superfund, all those acts were passed in the 80s. And there were issues that had to be handled on the different reservations and on the different native lands. And he was the guy who was going to all of those reservations. He's not going to be talking about that. He's going to be talking about 
why the messages and the information and the oral traditions of the Zuni people and the Hopi and the Navajo have been handed down for years, and why is that relevant today during this time of significant changes that we're in? And Clifford and uh, uh, Star Laughing Fox, who is a Cherokee medicine woman, uh, when they when they use the term grandmother, it means a woman of age, a woman of wisdom. <laughs> right. Right. So Star is now a grandmother. Uh, there's grandmother Itzan Ahre. She is White Mountain Apache and Irish. Um, Hilaha Homa is Blackfoot and Choctaw. Um, uh, Bear Cloud, who's very famous around here. He has his own gallery, an, an amazingly talented man, just an amazing painter. All of those people on Friday will be holding uh, sacred native ceremonies outside of the conference center. There'll be some smudging going on with a white sage, and all of them will hold prayer in their own native language. And that'll probably happen for an hour and a half to two hours wow. to, op- to open the conference. And this is the third conference in the U.S. I've, that I've done, and every single conference I've opened it with Native Americans holding ceremony. And it just sets an amazing tone for the oh, rest of the conference. Oh, yes. I think that yeah. is wonderful. And personally, I think those individuals are a lot more interesting than the known names out there. Yeah. Well, we've, we've got some of those. Uh, Michael Horn, who's the, the North American representative for Billy Myers, you know, the yes. Billy Myers Pleiades case. He, he and I had a conversation a few months ago and, and I said, here's the approach I'd like you to take. And so he listened. He's like, Oh, exactly. This is exactly where I've been trying to go with this information. It's not about Billy and his experiences. It's about what he's learned and what what we are in for as a human race during this time of change. I like Michael a lot. He's been a reoccurring guest on on the show. Okay. One thing thing he did do, though, that I wasn't expecting was the fact that he went after Peter Robbins in such a way. I just thought, my God, Michael. You need to you need to pull it back just a tiny bit there. He yeah, he, he really yeah. went after him. Yeah. Michael can be um, aggressive. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he can. I, I know Peter. I've met him. I love Peter. Times. I like I like both guys. So I just thought, yeah. oh no, I didn't want to bring yeah. both of you on here if you guys were gonna just bury each other. Yeah, that's not. And I'll 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 have a conversation with Michael before <laughs> before we get going. But so Michael's one of them. Uh, Dr. Lynn Katai of the Phoenix Lights documentary. She'll be here. Uh, Tom Dongo. Uh, I've known Tom since the early 1990s. He's a lifetime UFO paranormal investigator. The experiences this guy has had are off the hook. Amazing. And he's also had us his own gifts that doesn't talk about much. Uh, M and M, M and Miss M of Deep Disclosure will be here. Oh, they'll uh, be there. Yeah. Yeah. They'll be, they'll be talking on Saturday and, uh, my, my keynote speaker on Saturday, my Native American keynote speaker will be Clifford Mahoudi. And my, uh, if you will, to uh, uh, represent the sacred feminine and honor the sacred feminine, my keynote speaker on Saturday will be Allison Coe. And Allison, if you haven't heard of her, has been speaking probably for a year and a few months now uh, on YouTube. She is a, uh, a practitioner of Dolores Cannon's QHHT. Uh, healing practices to help people heal and resolve wounds from not only this life, but past life and past lives. 
Allison has learned an amazing amount of information from people who have already seen and experienced the higher dimensional shift of this planet. And they're talking about what life will be like after that shift happens. So Allison will be telling some of those stories and some of what she's learned and has shared with people over YouTube over the past year. This is the nice. first, very first time she'll be speaking publicly in front of a group of people. And she's a great lady. Um, she's going to be a kick in the pants just because she has such intelligence and high energy. She's just a wonderful woman. So I'm, I'm excited. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And again, I feel terrible that I can't make it out there. I, I would just have loved Shame to. Shame on you. I know, right? <laughs> maybe next time. It's okay. Yeah, hey, maybe next time. It's it's all right. You know what? All of us, we can only do our best at any given moment. But Michael, my my to use that metaphor, my door will always be open to you for any conference that I produce. Beautiful. So, and I'm going to yeah. hold you to your word because I, I got to go good. out there and I got to meet you in person, Tolik. Good. Good. Um I did matter of fact, not not just me. Me and uh my uh sister Adana from Star Ancestry and Alexandra Metters came to California in August of last year. It was actually the weekend of August 17, 18, 19. And collectively we spoke in Escondido. I love and it there. We, we did it. We did it in a, a restaurant that we thought would sit about 50 some odd people. That room was packed and we did it by donation only. We had a blast. We had such a great time. The people were wonderful to us. So I would come out again and do another event in California without question. Oh, you got to. That's a beautiful location. I went out there plenty of times. Great city. Yeah. Very yeah. good yeah, weather. Just, you know, it, it was, it was, we, we, we planned it over the course of two and a half months and Alexandra sent out a bunch of invitations to the people follow work and man, people were falling out the doors. <laughs> it was fun. We had a good time. Oh, man. So, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to California. Yeah, definitely. And I, I was curious in terms of sightings out in Arizona and New Mexico. I just wanted your opinion. Why is there so many sightings in that area? And again, why is Sedona, Arizona, why does it have that pull on people? It, it really does. There's some people that just gravitate towards it and never leave. Yeah. Um, here's what I've learned. And as, as I was telling my story earlier, early on, when I moved from New England to Arizona, I originally moved to Tucson. I was in Tucson on and off pretty much 21 plus years. And interestingly enough, the energy of healing is as strong in Tucson as it is here in Sedona. I'm not able to explain it other than the fact that you know, talk, talk to people that are researchers about energy and Gaia and ley lines, and they can probably do this topic better justice than I can, but there's a certain vibrational frequency that happens mm. here in the West. It's very strong in Tucson. It's very strong certainly in this greater Sedona area, which spills over into Cottonwood and Prescott and Prescott, Prescott Valley and Chino and Paulden. There is a lot of sightings going on there. With specific regard to Sedona, what I've been told is that, if you will, the the veil or the separation between this vibrational rate that we live in, this thing we call 3D, and the next vibratory rate of uh, the next higher vibratory rate is really, really thin. 
in this area of the West. So craft interdimensionally are able to slip in and slip out pretty easily around here. As for New Mexico, there's a lot of underground bases over there. Right, and you so, talk a lot about that. Yeah, not only New Mexico, but south, south southwestern Colorado as well. And there's been a map that was drawn by, I don't know who, but years ago. And this guy outlined all of the bases in New Mexico that went, that connected bases in Arizona, connected to Nevada. Apparently there's a tunnel system. So, I mean, there's, there's been, there's a lot. And by the way, have you interviewed Norio Hayakawa? I've not interviewed him. I met him once, but I've not interviewed him. No, not yet. You definitely should. He does have a vast sense of knowledge of New Mexico. And of course, there's also Paul Hillier, who's another fantastic source of information. Have you met with him? Uh, I've spoken with Paul. I, I tried to get him to join me and Edgar Mitchell and a few other people. And before I could pull it all together, Edgar passed away. I I spoke with Edgar Edgar about two to three months uh, before he passed. Um, I did have him on once. Uh, Myself, Joe Mara, Edgar Mitchell, I think um, Jim Delatoso, Jim Nichols from Tucson. It was an amazing conversation. Oh, yeah. It's fun to talk to Paul, and he wants to come back on my program and he's asking me about if I read his new ebook, and I'm thinking, Paul, I, I can't even find it on your website. Oops. I know. I don't think he I, realizes it's I like, not up there. I like Paul. I, uh, he he's. Um, Can you believe he's that old? Is he 94 now? I think he's even older than that. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. yeah I, when I spoke with him, he I think he was 92. That was like three Ooh. some odd years ago. Um, I don't even know how the man keeps going. Yeah, it's, he's got it a is, lot of energy it, in him. Yeah, it is amazing. Um, Let us all hope to reach that age. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, as long as our bodies and our minds are, are still <laughs> working ways for where they're supposed to. Well, who knows? Maybe in a matter of five, six more years, perhaps he'll live long enough to actually see new advances in technology that will make us live longer like the elites. But then again, that's man playing God. Yeah. Yeah, you know the uh, the guys like um, oh boy, there are a few of them. The the super soldiers uh, oh, that yes. have been sent off planet, like Emery Smith and a few others, and they basically and Randy Kramer. Uh, I think even Corey is one of those where they allegedly age regress them. Um, it's an interesting I notion. Know, yeah, uh, uh, amazing experiences. Definitely. I, you know, yeah, you know, there's, there's that, there's that whole part of this experience of guys who have been in space working for one segment of one of the space authorities. As a matter of fact, when, uh, when the movie Independence Day came out, there was even a shot where one of the military guys was walking up into this, into this, uh, I guess briefing room and it literally had the emblem and the words space command right on the front. Of the door. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I didn't catch that. Of, I, th- I think as of, and I had this conversation with somebody recently, and he went, yeah, I found that out too. There was actually a Space Command website, and it got pulled at the end of 2011. I was just starting my work. 
And I looked at it one day. I'm like, wow, look at this infrastructure. Look at all these people. Look at those different departments. They were gone. Like the next week and a half later, the whole thing was gone. No record of it. Here today, gone tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. But it's, you know, there have been different factions working off of this planet into, into outer space for years. Right. The, the war in space. Yeah, crashed retrievals, retrieved technology, retrieved, retrieved ET, ET technology. Uh, for people that haven't read it, if you're like really skeptical of all of this, go read Colonel Philip Corso's book, Roswell, The Day After Roswell. You know, <laughs> I have totally, a sign, oh, go ahead. I have I'm a signed copy. Signed copy. Fantastic. You know, yep. I'm, I'm interested in, in finding out your opinion. Um, in terms of, of movies, like actual movies, you mentioned, Independence Day, I was just about to ask you, isn't it strange that there aren't really many good films about extraterrestrials? It seems like there's a big lack of that in Hollywood. Yeah, we we get to see them every once in a while, but pretty typically... um, Not that good. Well, I know... It's not that good. We we see them when the different Star Wars movies comes out. Come, 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 comes out, yes. Uh, we see them when the different Star Trek movies come out. We see extraterrestrials, you know, because they're beings from other planets. Um, in the movie Battleship, and then subsequent to that, I think uh, two and a half years ago, uh, the movie Jupiter Ascending, we saw on screen for the first time full-blown, larger-than-life reptilians. Now, of course, they were speaking English, but reptilians, tall Draco reptilians with eyes and teeth. Intelligent. And it was the first time we'd seen them. So I, you know, one way or another, we get to see maybe what we don't want to see, but that disclosure happens in a number of ways. It's kind of like in plain, you know, hidden in plain sight. Right. And just to ask one more of the humorous type questions, I'm just curious what your opinion on uh, the fact that a lot of people that claim to have been abducted, they also have claimed to undergone different medical, I guess, procedures, you could say. And the occasional probing seems to be something that's quite common. I'm curious, why on earth are they so curious with that part of the human anatomy? Um, okay, this answer is more complex than it is simple. I knew you had an answer. Yeah, uh, if we look at the isolated scenario that unfolded over the course of many years with the race of beings from the Zeta Reticuli planet system, and by the way, that original group of people no longer lives there. They've been relocated to another star system. Um, but their great, 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 great grandchildren that left Zeta Reticuli years ago have been traveling the stars. Um, even SG-1 as a series explored this topic at some length, and they basically said, we have evolved ourselves to such a degree focusing on knowledge and technology that we are breaking down genetically. And in, in order for us to evolve, we need a gene pool from another race. And if you believe this story, a situation was negotiated between somebody in the Eisenhower administration and a number of races that included reptilians, but included what people ubiquitously call the greys, so that 
we were supposed to provide limited access, we being the U.S. government, not me, uh, limited access to a certain number of people to allow for a hybridization program so that these great, 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 great grandchildren of the Zeta Reticulans could continue their race and that they would have human seed and human ovum to do it. That's, that's part of the experience. Another part of it is, uh, human black ops, uh, operations, if you will, in order to control, manipulate and instill fear in people. And there's a woman that I know that I heard of years ago who I met recently by the name of Nayira Isley. And she was, I think she retired as a colonel in the army and she underwent an enormous amount of abuse and probing and a lot of it was done by black ops programs and not necessarily always by ETs. There's a better way to do that. <laughs> Obviously. Um, I, I think that these days we're seeing far less of those kinds of acti- activities happening. Right. You don't really hear very often about yeah, that. And, you know, in, in the, in the, the late, late eighties and all throughout the nineties, you heard a lot about it. Not so much these days. Right. And also cattle mutilation seems to have just dwindled last couple of years as well. Not yeah. many stories you hear anymore about that. Yeah. The, the guy to talk to about that would be Tom Dongo. He, he, uh, as a research researcher for many years, he, he came upon a few of those cases. Um, regarding the different ranches that he had done some work on. So, uh, he, he's probably one of the people best suited to, to tackle that topic. It's, it's not, certainly not my area. No problem, but everyone has an opinion. And yeah. I, I love yours. You're, you're a great guy to talk to, Tolik, and we definitely are coming to a close here on the interview. So I would definitely like to just say you're more than free to say any last word you'd like and go ahead and plug anything you'd like the floor is yours tolik okay well thank you um for those people listening to uh michael decon of end of day end of days radio keep doing it he's he's a good intelligent man with a good heart and and sir you come from a a good place a very well centered place so i want to i want to thank you for having me as a guest i appreciate it oh thank you very much i feel the same way tolik yeah, and and thank you for saying that because I, my experiences are unique to me, and they're certainly not believed by everyone. But you know, as many people say, um, and I mean I mean this sincerely, uh, go out and do whatever research that you need to, you want to. There are some really really talented people out there that know a lot, and actually, retired Canadian Defense Minister Paul Hellier is one of them. I, I couldn't, I was astounded, but I, astounded when I watched him and I watched his face as he said those words. He's like, I can't believe that I now know there are at least races of beings. One of them is reptilians. There's another one from the Pleiades. There's one from Andromeda. And here's this retired government official. I'm like, you go, Paul. All right. Yeah. That's what makes it more yeah. legit and incredible that there's someone in a very high-ranking place that definitely yes. believes and has information that we don't even have. Right. 
Yeah, so, yeah, that's right. You have to keep yeah. that in mind for those naysayers out there that government officials are looking into these sort of things and are very interested in them. Not yeah. some made up. Yeah, and, and there's uh, a gentleman who's a good friend of mine uh, who's not speaking anymore, um, retired Sergeant Major Robert O'Dean, otherwise known as Bob Dean. And his story is equally as impressive, but part of his story essentially said one of the races that we were aware of back in 1964-65, and he said they were aware, they being the U.S. military, they are aware of at least five or six races back then. And he used to tell the story over and over again for a bunch to a bunch of us in Tucson, and he'd say, one of them would come into Howard Johnson's. That's how long Bob's been around. They'd come into Howard Johnson's, sit down next to you, and have a, co- a cup of coffee or a cup of soda, and you'd never know the difference. They're human, just like we are. They just come from another world. <laughs> and the room would get quiet when Bob would say that. Um, of course, I, yes. I, you know, I I th- I think that in summary, I'd have to say that I um, I feel very blessed. I could have never predicted that my life would take this turn in 1993, and it it completely set me on a different course of life. But I'm I'm really happy uh, with uh, the person that I've become. I'm happy with the the choices that I'm making these days in terms of how I'm spending my time. And for all of those of you who are listening that might have an interest in coming to Sedona on September 28th through the 30th, there's still some tickets left. Uh, Clifford Mahorty, Mahudi, Michael Horn, Hila Hahoma, author Sonia Barrett, Dr. Lynn Katai, Shakina Rose uh, of Light Language fame, Tom Dongo, Eminem, Alison Coe. Just an amazing, amazing group of people over the course of three days. And you can go to the transformationalshiftevents.com website or the andromedacouncil.com website. Click on the right graphics or the right buttons and you'll see the, the 2018, the Great Awakening messages from our Galactic Con- uh, Family Conference. And uh, I know we're going to have a good turnout. I, I feel I feel blessed that I'm having this experience in my life, and I always end up meeting an amazing group of people. And one of the best things about conferences is that people get together; they've never seen each other before many times, and they go away feeling like they have brothers and sisters. And right, and they don't they don't even want to go home after that. Yeah, yeah, that happens. <laughs> I know. Yeah, and the conversations mm-hmm. go late into the night, and I wake up the next morning going. Oh, uh, here we go. <laughs> but right. it's all good. It, it's amazing to see that you have followed your true cosmic will, Tolik. Uh, you know, I, I, as I do this work, and I'm doing other work these days, um, long story short, I've always had a real passion and a real joy for um, uh, soul and R&B-fused contemporary smooth jazz. And so this year I'm producing my first smooth jazz concert ever up here in Sedona. And it'll be the first concert of its type in seven years. And I'm doing it for a young man who's out of Tucson, who's probably one of the top two or three jazz sax players of his type in the country. Wow. And he's a younger guy. He's like 30 or 32, new wife, two and a half, three-year-old child, Neiman Lyles. And I'm producing this concert on October 27th. And I'm equally as jazzed to produce that concert as I am to produce the conference because everything that makes me smile in terms of what I really enjoy in this life, I'm actually doing now. And that's, that's the only reason why it's relevant. It's because 
I'm really kind of like living my joy and living my path. That's right. You followed your true cosmic will. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. And what a difference in life. It does. Like, like I said, everything seems to go away. The fear, the, the anger, the emotions, everything is just right as it should be. Yeah. It's, um, I have no complaints. I, I've, I've lived a good life. I'm living a good life. If, uh, if I stepped off a curb and got hit by a truck or bus tomorrow, I'd be disappointed because I wouldn't be able to see the conference or the concert. But I, what I am trying to say is that it's been a great life. Right. And if I go sometime soon, I'll be okay with that. I'll, I'll be okay with that because I've got, I finally gotten to the place where I'm, I'm a good man and I, and I've done good things for people and I, I think I've made a difference in people's lives. And I think that's a great way to leave the planet. Yeah, that's true. And yep. I'm with you on all of that. Once again, Tolik, it's been an amazing time talking to you here live under a new umbrella, new ears, new souls, all finding out about the great one and only Tolik. <laughs> I wouldn't, I don't know about how so great, but hey, tell me, what's the name of this new network that you're on? What was that? Sorry, I had no, it's, hit the it's wrong okay. button. What's there? the name of this new network that you're on? Oh, that's the LNM radio network. Okay. All right. Well, I will, you know, as many people I can, as I can send over to you, I will do that. Yeah, fantastic. I'm sorry about the trouble there. I, I hit the wrong button. You know how technology is? <laughs> it's okay. Damn mute button. Yeah, it's all right. It's all right. Yes, sir. Well, once again, um, fantastic time. It was an interesting conversation. We'll definitely have to touch base again in the very near future. Michael, uh, thanks so much. You've been a real gentleman. I appreciate it. Clockwise, my friend, and mahalo. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And, and I, I will answer by saying this. Pila Maya Yelo. Oh, I and love that, that. That is uh, Lakota from a male speaking and saying thank you. Correct. Pila my Maya. goodness, Tolik. Once again, amazing. We'll talk soon, <laughs> my friend. Okay. Bye Take bye. care, Michael. Thanks again. Good night. And that was Tolik. He really is a fantastic guest, an interesting individual. I had a great time talking to him. And, of course, the second half of the program is coming at you pretty soon. My goodness, my second guest will be talking about the Antichrist. He believes he knows who the Antichrist is. Stay tuned in for that. You don't even have to feel bad about it. And welcome back to the program. And on the line now is my second guest, Mr. Clark Hay. Hello, Michael. Hello, my friend. How are you? Doing well this evening, thanks. My goodness, it's been a great night so far, and I'm so glad you could be here. Yeah, me too. This is kind of different for me. It's something that I'm not used to doing, so uh, this is uh, a real privilege. I appreciate you giving me this opportunity. No doubt, no doubt. And, uh, Clark, <laughs> you've lived a tremendous life, a very interesting life. There, there's so much to talk about. I, <laughs> I can't even believe that I'm actually talking to you. It's quite amazing, and one of the things that you did ask me about in our first exchange in emails was the fact if I was okay with you talking about the Antichrist and the fact that you yeah. believe that Jared Kushner might actually be the prime directive. <laughs> yeah, it's a real possibility. He's looking better than any other candidate I've ever seen in my life. I'm um, almost 66, so... I've been around a while, and uh, I've seen all sorts of supposed candidates come and go, but uh, 
the synchronicity on this one is just astonishing. There's uh, a lot of details that have come out uh, just through simple investigation that I've done, and uh, it's just going right down the checklist for uh, the type of person, the timing, everything, the synchronicity of it is just absolutely amazing. Incredible. But before we go down the political spectrum here tonight, I thought it would be great to first get a little feel for you there. Clark, just (laughs) (laughs) right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, well, what would you like to know? I mean, I sent you a little bit about some of my my history. Yes. You had a very early encounter when you were very young. I thought we could start right there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you mean uh, one of those three encounters? Right. That I left before you? Yeah. Six years old was your earliest oh, encounter. My. Holy yes, hell. Uh, that was uh, very unexpected. I knew nothing about. We're basically talking about three encounters uh, with UFOs rather close, not Seeing anybody necessarily or being abducted, that hasn't happened. But at the age of six was my first encounter with the UFO, and I had no idea what it was. It was late at night. I was on the back porch, summertime. Just happened to walk out for some fresh air and uh, looked at a tree that separated uh, right on the fence line between myself and the house behind us. And uh, something caught my eye, and I looked above the tree, and there was a disc maybe 20, 25 feet in diameter, maybe 12 to 15 feet in height, and you almost couldn't see it. The edges just had a soft, it had a very soft blue glow to it. Otherwise, it was a very dark um, silhouette against the sky. And just that faint outline, almost like the flame on a gas stove when you turned it on, you have that light blue flame. It was that kind of a blue, a little more faint than that. And I stared at it and thought, what the heck is that? I've never seen anything like that, but at the age of six, you haven't seen too much of anything. So I really didn't pay much attention to it other than it kind of concerned me that it was so close. It was maybe 50, 60 feet away, and it hovered motionless, soundless. Uh, There were uh, a dome on top. It was a kind of a flat-topped dome. And uh, if you ever looked at the Boston album, there's one that looks like a UFO. looked very similar in shape to that Boston album. I know that album. Um, My father actually has that one, and that's yeah, a great to make me album. Feel old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, yeah, and it looked very similar to that in, in its design. It was very simplistic. It wasn't gee whiz uh, Hollywood style, but as I stared at it. Um, Little blue look like jets from underneath, all fired simultaneously, and it was just plain gone. And by the, the way, second event, but by yeah. the by the way, Clark, I just want to say, even at the age of six, this experience must have been so tremendous for you that it was, even uh, even later on in life, as we are talking now, you are still able to have recollection of this event. I I think that is amazing. Yeah, well, it's it's something so out of the ordinary, and I didn't really know how out of the ordinary it was until I brought the subject up uh, amongst some neighborhood friends. And the kid that was behind me used to meet me up pretty regularly whenever he had the opportunity, but he was about three or four years older. He'd seen the same thing, same time. And I apparently stepped into his story, and he didn't like it, and we had a little confrontation there, but 
basically we both seen the same thing at the same time, and so I had corroboration there. But he told me what it was. He called it a flying saucer. I knew nothing about flying saucers. But then, of course, you know, you get interested in something that you've not known before, something curious, and I started watching movies, and I read Donald Keogh's book uh, when I was able to. By the third grade, I read that, um, one of the early books on UFOs. So, yeah, it was it was life-changing because it showed me that there were things out of the ordinary, uh, things that uh, most people don't encounter, things that are difficult to explain, but it opened up the possibilities that there's a lot more out there than we're aware of normally. Agreed 100%. And in your adolescence, did you ever experience maybe perhaps any sort of paranormal events as well, or was it just strange lights in the sky and strange men abducting you? <laughs> That's a joke. Well, probably. I never had the strange men abducting me in the anal probes. I caught you there. Like yes, I was trying to make you laugh. <laughs> no. Amazing. Uh, yeah, I've had a lot of uh, rather strange experiences, but um, maybe we'll get into some of those a little later, but yeah, I've had, I've had a number of experiences. So I was very curious about UFOs, started studying them. The second one, I was maybe 10 years old, about four years later. And, uh, I had told my nephews and nieces who were not much, not much younger than I am. I was a late in life baby. My sisters were married already by the time I was around. They had kids. We grew up together. They knew about it. I was camping with them, and uh, a very large, bright disc appeared over a shale bluff on the other side of the river. It was a very small river, and um, it stopped directly in front of the tent. It was maybe 150 feet away. But this thing was much larger. This was 50 to maybe 75 feet in diameter, very bright. Couldn't even see it distinctly. But it descended at an angle behind the trees of this bluff, and then the lights winked out, and I was terrified. By that time, I'd seen enough scary movies with aliens to know that this was not a good thing. And I right. kept waiting for them. To, I kept waiting for them to burrow underneath the tent, suck me down, play with my brain, make me a zombie or whatever. And I was terrified. And the next morning, I woke up with amnesia and couldn't remember much of anything. Didn't want to remember. I just knew I was terrified. And it wasn't until we left that all of it came flooding back, and, of course, no one believed me. Why should they? It's something so unusual. Why weren't they awake? Why didn't they see it? I don't know. I don't know. And the last one, uh, again, about four years later, five years maybe, um, two other people saw it along with me. One of them uh, ended up being a um, judge and a lawyer here in Oklahoma, and uh, the other person, I don't know what became of them, but we all three saw it together. It was a small disc, very similar to what Whitley Stryber has um, mentioned that came to his cabin. Very small disc, maybe two and a half, three feet in diameter. No lights, completely silent, and uh, we even threw rocks at it. But this thing glided around over roofs, around um, telephone poles, 15 feet over our heads. And at one point, it buzzed me and directly over my head probably less than a foot over my head at a very high rate of speed. And the only way I could see it was that it went straight towards the street light at the end of the street and uh, then made a move straight up into the sky. I mean, it was just, it did right-angle turns and it did lazy Susans. Uh, it was 
fascinating. So all three of us saw it the same night, and yes. uh, we remind each other of that when we see each other. And his his wife doesn't 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 believe him any more than mine believed me. So right, yeah. yeah. So Understood. those are the three incidents. Yes. And I was also curious, you grew up in a religious household, right? Uh, actually, not really. Um, my grandfather, my uncle semi-raised me. Uh, they were into masonry for a good long while, and they got wind that maybe that's not such a good idea. <laughs> right. And my grandfather was a, was a circuit preacher, but when I came along, I was one of those um, New Year's Eve babies conceived Apart from my namesake father, who was finishing up his military career, in those days, that was incredibly shameful. You didn't talk about it. People usually took their illegitimate child and left town. Um, it, was a, it was something that you really didn't talk about. When he came back home after his military service was over, um, he found uh, my mom pregnant with me, about three or four months pregnant. And so... Everything bad that could happen to my mom did happen to my mom. Uh, she ended up losing her eyesight. Was oh, blind. No. Um, we were basically on our own. Uh, she didn't have anything more than a high school education. Really couldn't get any kind of a job being blind. Uh, I was kind of her seeing eye kid. And and what about and, what about Dad Clark? Was he around? What? No, he he took off immediately. He said that's not my kid. Oh, and. Uh, he married his secretary and had his own family somewhere else. So have, have you forgiven uh, Clark? Ha Clark, oh, yeah, Clark, yeah. have you Clark? Have you forgiven your father? I guess I really struggled with that a long time. I, I hated him for not being around for me to at least know him, to maybe not like him or like him. Uh, but he really wasn't my father. What perplexed me and and um, the most was how tight-lipped my mom was as to who it was. I've since done some research, and I think I know who, uh, who my father was. I don't know anything more than his name. And you never, but, seek, uh, you, you never seeked out for him, Clark? I did. I saw him. He was uh, denied uh, permission to see me at any point. He saw my sisters, saw their kids, celebrated with them their birthdays and holidays. But I was forbidden... And he was forbidden to contact me. Uh, that was just mom's rules. Isn't that amazing so that I, they, they try to turn you away from your father? Yeah, yeah. And, it, and so there was no, when I did see him, he was 80-some years old. and already had a massive stroke. Didn't even know his own wife or his own kids. Oh, uh, no. He was a shell of a person. And so I sat down at the picnic table and stared across at an empty shell of a person just about two months before he died. Uh, there was no way to even communicate with him. Uh, but, yeah, I, I forgave him. I can certainly see how that would affect me if I'd come home from service and uh, found my wife pregnant. But he had already had an affair, so I figured, well, you know, things like that happen. So um, I really haven't held too much against him. I just wished that there was somebody around that I could have known as a father figure. But I had a nice uncle and um, had a brother-in-law that was um, – Kind of a sort of a father figure, big brother figure to me. So yeah, that's I had good. that going. Did you did yeah. you forgive your mother then for this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We <laughs> I pressed her buttons a number of times trying to trying to break her down yeah. so that she'd confess something, and she that's almost right. did a couple of times. Yeah. But it was uh, it was so intense that I vowed not to go there anymore. It was just it was too traumatic for her, so I left it alone. 
that's, yeah, that's good. Well, yeah. yeah, that's good that you you approach them though, and you let them know how you felt. Uh, that's a well, very yeah. good thing in life. You, you, everyone needs to do this sort of thing. I think so. I think so. It's you know just knowing who you are, what you, where you came from, just on health basis alone. What are my latter years going to be like? I'm already approaching those. So, will I have health issues? I don't know. Clark, Clark, how old are you now? I'll be 66 in October, so okay. uh, yeah, I'm getting up there a little bit. You're still a young man. Oh, thanks. Uh-huh. Appreciate that. Keep saying that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, of course, you, you had all these other interests in, in your life going on. Uh, of course, you were an atheist for a while, and then you turned back to, I guess, God, right? Yeah, I decided being an atheist really wasn't intellectually honest. I mean, you can't know everything to know that what doesn't exist. Um, you can't be everywhere and experience everything. So being an atheist seemed pretty intellectually dishonest. So I called myself an agnostic. I didn't. Mm. I thought that sounded better anyway. I, call, I just don't know if there's a God. I call myself, <laughs> right, I call myself an agnostic atheist. Yeah. Well, I guess you could do that. Yeah, because I, I yeah. have studied different religions and uh, this, that, and the other. And I still feel compelled to question everything. Maybe that's just the skeptic in me that wants to question everything, question authority. That's always how I've been in life, uh, even to my own well, parents. So, I mean, if you can't control me, I mean, if my own parents can't control me, what makes you think you can? <laughs> I really think that more people need to be questioning. <laughs> I, I, I had a list of 100 questions or uh problems with Christianity and the Bible, and I kept those pretty well tucked away, but I, I had a literal list, I mean, and I made sure I had at least a 100 objections to the Christian faith. So at an early age, um, that was probably about the age of 14, 15, that I decided agnosticism was probably sounded better, sounded a little more tolerant, maybe, rather than just hard-nosed atheist. And uh, then uh, life at that point started taking um I started seeing things in life and I thought, you know, really if there if there isn't a God, there's no such thing as right or wrong at all. It's just whatever people say at the moment, whatever you, the current uh, trends are. Right. And Clark, do you believe in karma? Um as an Indian concept, not really. Uh what I believe is that whatever you sow you reap. And sometimes what other people sow, you reap. <laughs> so right. I think I think we live in a fallen world with fallen people, and I don't expect things to be perfect. I expect sometimes bad people do things to me because they make bad choices. They've got their own lives and reasons. Um, I certainly have shot myself in the foot more than once. In fact, most of the problems in my life have been due to my own uh, failures to do things properly. So. Uh, I've been a rebel, um, right, right. even as a Christian. And once I once I opened myself up and said, "Okay, if you're out there, I'll give you my life if you really are there." But you're going to have to do something or show me something that I I'm basically life is empty and meaningless. It's pointless. It's just we're just a cosmic accident of evolution, and uh, there's no point to any of it. And so I, I really had kind of a, a nihilistic view of everything. Uh, at a very early age. So when I opened myself up like that and did it honestly, um, it was like 15 years of being without a father 
That many years of intense love swept over me. Totally caught me by surprise. I mean, it was just overwhelming. I dropped to my knees and uh, teared up and couldn't stop crying for about an hour. It was that intense. Um, I felt like at that point, if I didn't have an earthly father, then there's something, someone out there that really does love me. And I'm going to try to find out who this guy is. So that's when I started my journey into Christianity with 100 questions and more, and uh, more developed as I went, and I still have some questions, but... You know, if you really pursue something and you dive into it almost obsessively, uh, you're bound to learn something sooner or later. Amen so on that, yes. I I and I have looked into other religions, too. I mean, I studied, you know, before I got that far, I got into things like the Rosicrucians and Theosophy and looking at Hinduism at an early age. I got into oh, a little bit of yoga. I got down to where I could do my heartbeat at about 10 to 12 beats per minute. And I can still influence my heartbeat when I go to the doctor's office. Not quite as much, but I can make it fluctuate. And uh, so, yeah, little things like that. I was always intrigued by those mystics of the past and from uh, any any religion, whether it's American Indian, the Shamans, or uh, holy men from, the, from India. Yeah, things like that fascinated me. Uh, I always have taken the idea that gold is where you find it, and truth is truth no matter where it comes from. So I picked up a lot of little pieces of this, that, and the other that I think are true. I've got a collection of sayings and, you know, wisdom down through the ages that I've kind of compiled over the years and from Greek and uh, Roman days to, you know, far, far away places. So truth is truth. And right. uh, I embrace it and I, I seek after it. So, yeah. Understood. And one other thing I saw in your bio that you sent me, that you conducted a one-man illegal archaeological dig. <laughs> you you got to tell me about yeah. that. What on earth? Um, Lord have mercy. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, when I went for a bachelor's and a master's degree in biblical literature, theology, uh, Greek, Hebrew, and all that stuff, I was burned out. I was tired, sick and tired of the politics of higher education. Uh, I knew that if I went on from there, it was going to be a six, seven, eight-year long, hard slog through um, becoming more and more a master of less and less because they make you really define your area of expertise and you'd have to take something so obscure that <laughs> and uh, you make a master, I mean, a doctoral thesis out of it. And, you know, you learn more and more about less and less. And I didn't want to go that route. It was too expensive, too long. I was just absolutely burned out. Wanted to go to Canada. Headed to Canada with my wife. I thought we were on the same page, but she grew up rich. I grew up poor. The rich side won out for her. She said, I can't do this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go out. I'm not going to, that's way too dangerous. This is stupid. I want to go to LA, which is diametrically the opposite. I went, ended up getting a divorce and I went into a tailspin and uh, decided if I'm going to have any adventures in life, now's the time. I've really got nothing left to lose. So I took what little I had. I worked three jobs for a year, got a ticket, went to Israel, stayed on a kibbutz, and uh, about 10 miles from the Jordan border, uh, about 15 miles away from uh, the, where the Battle of Armageddon is going to be. And uh, I decided, let's have an adventure. So I, I found a place where they had put in a brand-new irrigation pipe. 
and started walking along that in the field. And it was marked with barbed wire. You're not supposed to be there. <laughs> I ignored there that, you, of course. But there you were. <laughs> yeah, sure. And I, I saw I saw a grave uh, that looked like no one had ever touched this area before. And I started digging with my hands. I came back with a shovel. And I uncovered if it ended up uh, an area that produced well over 50 graves that were 4,000 years old. One of them was uh, from the time, it's from the time of Abraham, possibly a group that came through maybe with him. Who knows? But it was a burial ground, and um, one of the graves had been untouched. I uh, decided to go ahead and uh, see what I could find on my own. I knew that was illegal, but I thought, well, no one knew about this. No one is going to know about this. I'm out here in this field all by myself. Right. And so one day I looked up and there was somebody standing over me with a camera. <laughs> oh. And I had just pilfered some small things, yeah, brass rings, um, some beads and uh, necklaces and uh, just a few bones and some pottery fragments. And I was piecing those together when a knock came on the door and someone said, the police are here, take your stuff, throw it over the fence and uh, try to get out of here because they're here for you. And uh, they they did put me in the car. We went down uh, and in uh, a line of four or five police cars. They arrested a mother and her two sons that had been doing the same thing, but selling the goods on the black market. And then they drove me to the prison, and they said, this is where you're going to be spending a good number of years. You've broken five laws. I was terrified. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, well, I don't... I don't blame you for feeling that way. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up, uh, even though they had the pictures, they didn't have any evidence. I had disposed of those very rapidly, and I had nothing in my possession to show. All they had is a picture of me standing there with a shovel, and that was it. Right. All they charged me with was just having trespassed on the ground that I wasn't supposed to be on. And that was such a small thing they weren't going to bother I was a stupid tourist from America, so they let me go, but they put me uh, they put me with an archaeologist that wanted to go back to that area, and we did uncover uh, uh, amazing untouched graves from the time of Abraham 4,000 years ago. So that was kind of a neat thing. It worked out well, but uh, there for the time being, it was a little touch and go. Right, and one other thing that I think we might have skipped over here during the interview was the fact that you got kind of tangled up in drugs for a oh, short yeah, time. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. What, yeah. what was I, that like? um, <laughs> You know, when when you go through a bachelor's and a master's degree, you learn all sorts of things except about what happens in real life when things don't go right. And one of those things was uh, divorce. Yeah, and that was very hard yeah. for you, right, Clark? Oh, it was it was devastating. Um, absolutely devastating. Now, my ex-wife and I, we patched things up. We both got remarried. We talked extensively. We cried. And um, she's, she's doing very well. And, uh, yeah, we've forgiven each other because, you know, there's, it takes two to make a problem like that. Right. So when it happened, though, I was absolutely devastated. I mean, I prayed. I tried for a year and a half to get her back and just exhausted myself emotionally and because she left me for a variety of other people it made me feel very inadequate and in the middle of the depression i met somebody 
who used drugs, and uh, he uh, gave me that um, warmth and acceptance and uh, embraced my sexuality and made me feel like maybe I wasn't so inadequate after all. And uh, that drug use uh, just kind of spiraled uh, out of control. I had to leave L.A. to get away from it. Oh, you were, in, a lot of, you, you were in Los Angeles? Yeah. yeah, actually, Pasadena. Oh, okay. Well, that's a that's a fantastic location, especially during that time. I could just imagine all the fun you were having. Uh, I love the San Gabriels. The San Gabriels, in the midst of my depression, were almost like my salvation. It kept the little sanity I had sorted together most of the time. You could really, and, you, uh, could, yeah. you could really get led down all sorts of paths, especially in a beautiful location, and you mix that with some drugs and alcohol. You, you could definitely make a lot of bad decisions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. My absolutely. God. So, yeah, it was, you know, you do what you can to feel good for a little bit of time because life is, with a bachelor's and a master's, no one's going to hire you. Is at a time in Los Angeles where, man, tons of people were out of work and the tons competition as it probably is now. Yeah, it's it, it, was, it was stunning to me that that many people, um, were looking for jobs with, with advanced degrees and couldn't get hardly anything. So I was doing uh, part-time work like so many people in the L.A. area do just to get by. And uh, good people, hardworking people, but struggling. And uh, I, I'd work as long as I could. And then my depression and uh, mental confusion and my well-being was it was really dicey. It was really dicey. But I had to leave. I had Understood. to get away from the people that were my uh, suppliers. And uh, cocaine was my preference. So Cocaine, yeah. yes. Yeah, and that's very expensive. It's a very, ex- <laughs> yeah, it's a very, <laughs> it's a very expensive watered down drug. Right. Yeah. But the but the marijuana, yeah, Maui Waui, yeah. Well, that, that's that's the thing though. Marijuana, <laughs> in my opinion is not the devil's lettuce. I fully support marijuana here on the program as well, medical and recreational use. I see nothing wrong with it, especially if you use it in its proper context. I think it, it's it's amazing. Well, I have one uh, Indian medicine man. His name is Rolling Thunder. Um, you can look him up, Rolling Thunder. There's still some stuff on the Internet about him. There were... He was studied by people from UCLA uh, as one of the America's uh, last great uh, healing uh, medicine men. And uh, I visited him and had an interview with him and stayed on his uh, Native American camp in uh, Harlan, Nevada, for about a little over two weeks. And uh, fascinating, fascinating gentleman. But he told me that as far as he was concerned, it was only to be eaten, not smoked, and only as prescribed by a good shaman. And they said uh, it, it really helps the stomach and helps a lot of things, anxiety attacks. And he was uh, he was pro uh, eating it, but not smoking it. Yeah, there's and a lot so, of people. Yeah, there's a lot of people out there who choose to consume it rather than inhale it. And there's right. different. Yeah, there's different properties for both. Uh, a bit healthier if you do eat it. It's a lot easier on the on the lungs. And it it just helps a lot of people out there who are definitely sick, especially those with cancer. And I've known people with cancer, and this has tremendously helped them, those that have seizures and all these sort of uh, 
illnesses out there. They use different marijuana products, CBD oil, cannabis oil, right. and it, it helps them get through. And it, it makes me feel very, um, it makes me feel very indifferent for some of the laws that we do have here in America where they discriminate against uh, some uh, natural plant that grows that can help humanity, in my opinion, and for a lot of different medical purposes out there, yet it's so bastardized. Yeah, it is, and it, it is sad. I, my third wife did die of cancer, about a 13-month battle. Oh, that's terrible. I'm and, sorry to uh, hear that, Clark. But she did have access to Marinol, and now uh, that's a very high-priced <laughs> version of the right of the yeah the essence of marijuana and uh, very costly but uh, the the chemotherapy and it was it was devastating for her uh, her body and it, that gave her peace it increased her appetite uh kept her from throwing up as much um having the dry heaves and uh yeah the medical use as yeah, I'm definitely I'm definitely for the medical use of marijuana and the CBD oils especially. But for me, taking it recreationally on a spiritual level, it basically gave me acid trips. I mean, just regular well, standard. Right, it, marijuana yeah. is a mild hallucinogenic. Yes, and it, it's always been used in conjunction with, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to say witchcraft or the shamans. Uh, oh, they yes. would use that. Right. And uh, so it, it provided a contact with the other realm. It broke down whatever barriers in our consciousness between this world and that. It's just outside of our normal experience. And so they would be able to be in touch with a variety of spirits. And uh, from a Christian standpoint, the only thing that that puts me in touch with is basically got to said, don't become inebriated. Don't use, uh, in the New Testament, it calls pharmakia. Uh, it's a word that has to do with sorcery by use of drugs. Um, because it did, it put me right in that, it put me in the enemy's camp, <laughs> left me without any defenses whatsoever. And I had some rather bizarre experiences there. Um, definite encounters of the bad kind and, uh, played with my head a lot. A lot. And like I said, it, it would, for me, it was like a, an, a bad acid trip where you encounter bad beings that play with your head. Oh, that doesn't sound very good. Usually people do yeah, have, yeah, people do have these bad trips where they remember things that they wanted to forget. But in my opinion, those aren't exactly bad trips per se. Those are, yeah, yeah those are experiences that I believe your mind really tries to block out that it feels the need to present itself to you instead of putting it in the back of your head. It gets pushed right in the front. That's what most psychedelics do. And I think you could actually learn quite a bit from these sort of experiences. You go back in your mind and, and you have, you suddenly get these memories of yourself talking to your parents, a friend, a girlfriend, a wife, whatever the case may be. You, you see yourself from the outside perspective. And you see perhaps that you may or may not have been as kind to this person that you should have. And I think that is a great step forward for humanity to see inside themselves and get that proper perspective and to break things down and to see everything in the bigger picture, the bigger context, that 
Right. Life is bigger than us, bigger than the individual. We are so small, so insignificant. We are just ants, basically. Basic, we, we're basically bacteria on this earth. And it, it, it really puts things into proper perspective. And once you see things this way, from the macro or the micro to the macro, rather, life just makes sense in all sorts of different ways. Once you really view things like that, Clark. I think the American male especially is guilty of hiding from so much about themselves, about the world, uh, their emotions, um, self-evaluation, honest self-evaluation, facing things. Um, <laughs> the average male, I think, really has become fragmented and separate from them, from himself. And uh, you're right. A lot of the times, those types of issues will come out in a drunken state um, with the use of drugs. You you see a totally different side of yourself from a different perspective, and it's raw. It's very raw. But my encounters were really much more of a, of a spiritual nature. It, it would probably yes. take a little too long to go into here on that. Well, definitely, it, uh, definitely this is a spiritual battle, good versus evil. This is yes. if this is right or if this is wrong. This is what we are seeing today currently in America. doesn't matter what political side you are. It always goes back down to good versus <laughs> evil. It's very strange, right? Yeah, it really is. It's it's astonishing. Uh we're every year seeming to hit new heights or lows. <laughs> it's just we're outdoing ourselves every year. It's just amazing. We've sunk to our lowest common denominator and, and continue to press deeper. It's, uh, it's astonishing. It really is. And in today's society, I brought this up with the previous guest, and I was amazed with his response. And I'm curious what you think. I asked my previous guest if he thinks there is a war on masculinity in America. How do you feel about that? I usually don't run in those circles, but it seems like there is. Um, it's It's been here since, gosh, since I was a teenager. You had uh, the women's lip movement um, rise up. But, yeah, it's there is a war on masculinity, and I can understand why, because men can be such jerks. That's true. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm not saying that women can, they're, they're all angels and everybody's good on that side, but, uh, men in this culture, um, we've got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot really of work do. to do. And I can, I can understand, uh, since I was raised by a single parent, a mom, um, and raised poor, I, I experienced a lot and saw a lot from her standpoint. And from a woman's standpoint, so I've been very sympathetic to that, um, and I've seen my own flaws as a as a man, um, and in my relationships, I've I've seen myself say and do things that you can't take back that have uh, definitely been hurtful. Right. Um, and I, I can see how the women's live movement definitely wants to elevate women because there's been so many misogynists in business. Um, in all walks of life, I have some supposedly good Christian friends who are very misogynistic. The jokes that they tell just make me cringe, and that's, I call them yeah, on it. That's very true, but I also have to cut in here and say that women tend to be some of the biggest misogynists as well. Lots of women yes. hate each other. 
I don't think I've ever met a woman who has great despise for another woman in their heart. Right, right. You know, <laughs> there's always this rivalry, cattiness. Um, right. We're human beings. We're, we're flawed. We're flawed. We really you know, are. We uh, really are. This is why I was telling my previous guest that there's so many issues with the feminine and masculinity, uh, masculine energy, rather, that just there, there is a definite uh, outer balance that we are seeing in today's society, and and we really can't turn away from it. It's everywhere. Some people don't like that I talk about politics. Some people don't like that I like uh, to talk about extraterrestrials. But all these sort of strange things, they all co-mingle together in a very weird way. Once you really start to connect, yeah. Once you really start to connect the pieces of the puzzle. All these sort of things, they really do just connect together in just the weirdest ways. Yeah, yeah, they do. They do. Everything's interrelated. It's, uh, it's, you know, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you know, man's really not complete unless he's got that feminine, the, the counterbalance to right. his masculinity. Right, right. And uh, those all come from a single source uh, in the Bible. Or they come from God, and they're good. Uh, they're different, but they're they're needed. I mean, there's I I know I've got a, a feminine side to me. I grew up, I was instilled with a lot of things that maybe guys that had fathers um, didn't get so much, and uh, I I saw life a little differently than maybe people that had the strong father figures. Um, so yeah, I can see where they're coming from, and. Uh, <laughs> It, it is important, but it is important to seek out your father. It, it, you do yearn for the father. Yeah. That is very true. And this might not Absolutely. be, yeah, this might not be the most politically correct thing I'm going to say right now. But growing up at a young age, I, I must tell you, Clark, it, it was always apparent to me that the other school children that didn't have fathers, I, I could always point them out in my mind. Uh, they were more feminine. They were more sensitive. You, you couldn't really talk to them a certain way. You couldn't really rough house with them a certain way. This is all something I saw at a very, very young age. I think I might have been six or seven years old when I really started to come to that mindset that some of these kids don't have fathers. They are raised by either their grandmothers or a mother, but they have no father figure. Perhaps they have sisters. But I, I did see this sort of feminine, a more of a feminine energy towards them. And I'm not saying that's a wrong thing. I'm just saying that's just an observation I had very young in right. life. How do you feel yeah, about that? I saw those people, I saw those people too. Uh, I wasn't one of those. <laughs> <laughs> right. I understand. I, yeah. I, my mom was kind of a tomboy growing up. Um, she was one of those daredevil kids that climbed trees and uh, drank, uh, and drank Bud Light. There, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. She, she drank whatever she had. <laughs> yes. So she was, she tried to be both. And I, I had, uh, like I said, a very strong uncle that, um, was kind of a, a mentor and took me hunting and fishing. I loved the outdoors. I was, uh, I wasn't, I was a person. I don't know if I really defined myself as male or female. I was a person and I was trying to be the best and most well-rounded. I was attached to nature, um, very muscular. Uh, I was in gymnastics very early on. 
I was one of those kids that could sit there in the gym and grab that big rope that they used to have and yes. climb it all the way up military style with my legs straight up in an L position, uh, just using my hands and go all the way to the top and back down. Uh, I was <laughs> not, not, I was extremely attracted to girls from a very early age, <laughs> very early age experimenting. Oh, <laughs> so yes. yeah, I was very very masculine in that respect. Uh, so there was there was right. no confusion of, of sexuality. I was trying to rein in those uh, those urges. <laughs> early age. Understood. <laughs> understood. And, of course, when was it in life where you became interested in, in the political spectrum? Uh, for me personally, I this was – politics was something that I thought in my early years was something I was going to do later on in life. I actually had really? – yeah, I actually had helped uh, my friend's grandfather who was in the Republican Party where I'm at, and I was helping him on a few things very early on in life. Uh, helping him on his campaign on, on certain things. I, you know, I've never even talked about this sort of thing, but I think I should just be honest with all of you out there. And this was something part of what I thought I was going to hurl myself in, especially being someone of multi-race. I'm out here in Southern California, and a lot of the politics that I, I have and some of the things that I follow are just not in line with people who see me and perceive me in a certain light. So with that said... I'm I'm pretty intimidating, I'm pretty crass, I'm pretty obscene, but I'm also very polite. And <laughs> right, right. So you kinda of get my drift, right? Right, right. Well, politically, um I try to stay away from it all. I've never I've never trusted politicians or lawyers. Neither do I well, I th- that's why I got out of all of that, because I soon realized that it does not matter. If you are a Republican, are you a Democrat, an Independent? They're all the same. They're all liars and deceivers and conmen. You know, and I learned about all these things. Yeah, it's really hard to render the truth from these people in government when they all deceive. They're all liars. Yeah. You have Maxine Waters out here in California, who is just a nasty woman. And that's just a fact. She's a nasty woman. And proud of it, my God. She is very proud of it, yes. My my state, I'm very just, I'm very sad about California. There's so many things out here that just, it just, it blows my mind. And then I hear all these stories about San Francisco. A few friends of mine live there. And they, they see the homeless people just defecating in the street. It's truly amazing. It is, it is. And to think that just maybe 30 years ago, uh, life was so much nicer. <laughs> yeah, what, what know, happened? And, what happened, Clark? Oh, so much has happened. My gosh. Oh, Lord. Uh, there's another show right there. What happened to America? Yeah, seriously. You know, I, I, I grew up um, politically disinterested. I've always been a political atheist. I've never looked for any political saviors. Um, I've just known that um, they're really, I've always felt like they're two and they were nibbling at either end towards the middle. And the guy in the middle is going to get screwed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, you, you, on the liberal side, they take bites out of 
certain things. And, and, and the worst, the, the worst thing, Clark, the worst thing, Clark, is that none of these people ever take responsibility for any of their downfalls. That's what always no. really irks me. No, no. Um, I grew up in the Kennedy era. I remember Eisenhower, and I remember his last televised speech talking about the industrial complex, military complex, and warning America about that. I remember JFK and uh, the assassination. I was in uh, junior high school, middle school, excuse me now, um, when he was assassinated and absolutely blown away by the Warren report. Man, (laughs) these guys are covering somebody's butt. Oh, you know it. You know it. It takes so many years to fully get the truth out. And even if we do get the truth out, it's still suppressed. Uh, For instance, we we don't even have all the facts of the JFK assassination. And here we are in 2018. And, of course, not to mention uh, 9-11, which we just passed by yet again. Another another pivotal point in our nation's history where all of our foundations were turned upside down. It does not matter what you think in terms of this was a conspiracy or not. Left or right, I really don't care what your political ideologies are. This was a fact that all of our foundations here in this country were just completely wiped away. And we're still living through this fallen state. Yes. Yes, we are. And we had a, we had a really good shot at turning things around with Martin Luther King and with John F. Kennedy and uh, to some extent maybe Bobby Kennedy. Some people um, even say that JFK was the last real president. He probably was. He probably was. Um, I look at today's president and vice president in some it's I don't want to make a direct comparison here, but That's okay. I see I see LBJ is to John Kennedy what Mike Pence is to Donald Trump. Mm. That's what I see. I see. That's yes. what I see. And I, I, I wouldn't, I don't know that much about the man, but something about him, I, I don't know. I don't think I could trust him any further than I could throw him by his mother's <laughs> hair. <laughs> I like that. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. so now let's get into the topic of Jared Kushner. You think, in fact, that he just may, in fact, be the Antichrist. I think that is interesting, mm-hmm. and Jared Kushner, yeah. no doubt, is a slumlord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, you know, he's one of those people that you mention his name in, in most circles, and people go, "Who's that?" Yeah, I don't even know who Jared Kushner <laughs> is. Right? They don't even know him. This is a, this is a guy that um, has just basically come out of nowhere, and as many uh, news reporters since he's made his presence known, say he's the secretary of everything. Um, this is a, a young man that um, has his fingers in just about every pie. Uh, he's involved at just about every level as Trump's senior advisor. Now, for a gentleman that has absolutely no political, no diplomatic experience whatsoever, to suddenly rise to that level of prominence of influence over the president, uh, and he's he's one of those gentlemen that used to be a Democrat until Trump came along and he married into the family. He saw an opportunity. 
He uh, greatly assisted in getting Trump elected. He batted his head, uh, butted his head against Bannon and Priebus uh, uh, and Comey, and he's he's carved out a little niche for himself, a big niche. When you when you rise that quickly to a position where you're negotiating Middle East peace treaties, renegotiating NAFTA in a matter of three days when it took three years to put together, when you're involved in just about every aspect of the government today and very, very real life, uh, life affecting policies, um, who the heck is this guy? So when I started seeing him rise up in the ranks and make a Kind of a behind the scenes, he's a man behind the curtain, so to speak. Um, when I saw all of that going on, and especially when he was making peace in the Middle East, one yes. of the comments that he made right. uh, was that he's got a peace plan put together, and he's going to reveal it when the time is right. Yes. Uh, of course, you're referring to the never-ending conflict between the Israelis and the Panestil- uh, Palestinians, rather. And Absolutely. he's given that role to try to come up with some sort of solution. And it's just ridiculous that someone with no experience and just really has no reason to be there was just plucked out of yeah. the ether to control what's going on in the Middle East when we all know that the Middle East and that conflict is a spiritual war. It's a religious war that we are yeah. sucked into and... A religious war is just never going to end. Of course, no, we, we, really we, we really do have to take responsibility. I, I do give that sort of credit to the CIA, who really helped kick off these these never-ending conflicts with the Middle Eastern people. Oh, yeah. It's the, uh, the Arab Spring uprising, that great destabilization of Arab countries. There's so many aspects of all of that that... Um, well, they've all, the CIA's always been, they're pretty naughty boys. They're, oh, yes. they've, they've put down dictators, uh, left and right in the old days, and, uh, they work with, uh, a variety of, of other agencies to make sure that the areas are destabilized. Central Bank can move in, and he's, uh, Eric Kushner, though, basically showed himself to be an opportunist. He, he married into the, the Trump family, got, helped to get Trump elected, did a great job there, moved into all of these incredibly sensitive areas of uh, negotiations as an advisor. He's got Trump's ear a lot of the time. Trump you know, himself is kind of one of those enigmas where he's, he's really neither Republican nor Democrat or he's both. <laughs> Whenever it suits him, uh, right. he's he's a, he's a wheeler dealer. He's he's Italian salad dressing. He's a little oil, a little water, a little vinegar, and some little pieces of you don't know what mixed in there that's floating around. He's um, but he's not so tied into this globalist new world order group of guys. He's not so tied in the politics as usual he's just enough of a maverick in his own own right and he's listened to enough alex jones to be wary of some things that other people willingly embrace like globalism um he he, he's not easily controllable 
and he sometimes uh, does things that really throw a monkey wrench into the uh, the affairs of the globalists. Now, my wife thinks that maybe that's a clever ruse that he's uh, he was handpicked long before the elections, and uh, that maybe he's actually working for the bad guys. And is uh, but Jared Kushner <laughs> is first of all. When I started looking at him with that Middle East peace negotiations, the Middle East, and especially Jerusalem, Jerusalem in the end time scenario of the Bible, Jerusalem is a center point. It's a bone of contention and hotly contested. It's referred to as a cup of trembling on the world stage, and it becomes pivotal in the end time uh, scenario. Uh, You have... All of the powers of the world starting to take an interest in the Middle East. And you have the kings of the East with an army of 200 million men. You have people of the far north uh, that start to move down towards the Middle East. You have Gog and Magog, which is located in modern-day Turkey, uh, start to get into the play of things. You have Egypt playing into things. You have all of the Middle Eastern countries represented in the end time struggles for the Middle East, Jerusalem, Israel, and the people of Israel have returned from their dispersion uh, to their homeland, there's chaos, and then some guy comes along in the midst of the worst of the, the conflicts, he comes up with a peace solution. That peace solution is a short-term thing, and it's a seven-year peace treaty is what he comes up with. Halfway through it, though, something happens, and everything goes from kind of okay to really bad, and it may be that he's uh, assassinated, and then he comes back to life, but it's not just him. (laughs) He's got a darker force inside of him at that point, and it really gets ugly. But Jared Kushner, he's, he's Jewish. And in Christian understanding, if you deny Jesus, you're also denying the person who sent him, his father. So that automatically qualifies you to have a spirit of Antichrist. You're looking for a different Messiah. You're rejecting the one that came. And so in Christian understanding, that makes you kind of an Antichrist already. And that's probably politically incorrect to state, but that's basically what the Bible says. Understood. And when I look into the eyes of Jared Kushner in this photo on this website, I could almost see the evil in him. He's, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's one of those people that uh, looks like a a lamb, but he may end up being a lion. I think so. I I truly believe he is a sheep in wolf's clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, when I mentioned Kushner as possible, my favorite candidate for Antichrist, there's a lot of good reasons for it. That all depends on one's expectations. And when I mean the sheep, um, I mean he goes by what he's told. And, of course, he's wearing that suit. And looking into those eyes, I just see evil. <laughs> he is an evil man. Well, well he's, he's relatively young. He's good-looking. He's got business savvy. He's polite. He's supposedly charming. Um, he's Jewish. His upbringing is with a father that is, um, well, maybe his morals and his ethics are not what you and I would call ideal. When his father got busted 
and was in legal proceedings, uh, his brother-in-law was going to testify against him in court. So Jared's father set up a prostitute with a camera, a video camera, and videotaped their escapade. He showed the video to his sister and uh, used to, used that to try to blackmail them into not earning state's evidence against him. Well, he was caught and uh, charged with that felony on top of everything else, and he spent two years in the slammer. Now, that's the kind of business, moral, and ethics that Jared Kushner was raised in. He's also part of the Lubavitch movement. The Lubavitch movement is a uh, elitist Jewish movement with, according to their own website, somewhere between 40 and 200,000 people that are members of this Lubavitch movement. And they greatly revere their rabbis, even the ones that have died. They'll even camp out at their graveside and almost like some Catholics pray to these people and revere their teachings. And their teachings are largely drawn from the Kabbalah and the Zohar. The Kabbalah and the Zohar, for your listeners that may not be familiar with it, it's essentially Jewish esoteric witchcraft. And uh, there there are elements of uh, the Kabbalah that teach you certain incantations. If you say it right and you've achieved a certain level of enlightenment, you might be able to command demons and angels to do your bidding. And uh, even in the Kabbalah, the people that study it today, uh, they say that the number 666 is actually a good number, a good number. It's kind of like Christian logic stood on its head. They said, no, it's not a, that's not a bad number. That's actually a good number. It's a good number of man and creation. Man was created on the sixth day. The, the Hebrew uh, word for man is basically uh, six is a symbol for, for man. And that 666 is the epitome of goodness, and it also has messianic potential. Now, you have this kid that's following this Jewish Kabbalah. He's heavily invested in it. His family's been heavily invested in it. They're Lubavitchers from a long time ago, given lots of money to it. He's arisen out of obscurity, and he has shown that he can fight pretty well behind the scenes with people like Bannon, Priebus, and Comey, right. and get them removed. He's He's got that hard edge to him that you don't see initially. He's made a name for himself very rapidly. He's involved in international affairs at the highest levels. Um, and he's possibly, with the Kabbalah and some of the teachings that they have, there's a, a bit of Luciferian logic and doctrine involved in that as well. Uh, Lucifer, uh, for those Luciferians out there, I'll make sure I make a distinction between Satanism and Luciferian. They make the distinction. I don't. Um, I see Satan and Lucifer as basically the same thing. But they make this big distinction that Lucifer is really the good guy, Yahweh's the bad guy, Jesus was a failed Messiah, and in the Kabbalah they teach about reincarnation. And you don't know who you're reincarnated as. You could... You're going to be reincarnated if the person that you're reliving the life for right. has failed in some way. You can be born again, and you can complete the original mission you were given. Now, if Jared Kushner did believe that he has messianic potential, he could think of himself as maybe I'm the reincarnation of Jesus. He has taken on messianic ambitions. I mean, 
you couldn't possibly be involved in, a, in any more things that he's involved in without having this view of yourself as being some sort of messiah. He's got to have some sort of a gigantic ego to go with all of this, to think that he's going to be able to do things that no one else can do. And so far, he's done a pretty good job of showing that uh, he's at least capable of, of seeing things like NAFTA and possibly a Middle East peace deal. So to me, that's the things I was looking for. Um, he might think of himself as a messianic type figure. He's, he's a very fascinating individual. But if the end time prophecies in the book of Revelation were this, this beast, this antichrist actually gets a head wound and comes back to life again, kind of mirroring Jesus' death and resurrection, the entire world is amazed. I mean, how could this guy survive that? How could he survive this wound and come back to life? And he's probably not himself inside there. There's probably going to be somebody a little darker. So when he does that, then uh, things go south, and uh, there's anybody that opposes him is a target. And, of course, Christians, if they're halfway awake at that time, alert that he's the bad guy, they're not deceived by his acts, um, they'll be sucked into it. But those that do oppose him, he opposes them with a vengeance. And already Christians have made a bad name for themselves. We've shot ourselves in the foot so many times and in so many ways. Uh, Christianity has, for many people, become a real laughable, derisive topic. And uh, right. I can understand why. I can understand why. Understood, understood. And many good points you just made there. And it's true, lots of different negative things that come through the Christian church as well as the Catholic church. We're seeing this today, which is tremendous. Have you been keeping up with all that? Oh, my, yes. Uh, it, it makes me sick at my stomach. It's, uh, everything that, <laughs> oh, Lord. You know, if if we took modern-day Christianity, the popular version of it, uh, and was able to get Jesus and the apostles here, they'd say, what the heck did you do? <laughs> you made some wrong turns, a bunch of them. <laughs> and what the heck is this? This isn't what we were talking about. So, uh, yeah, and then you look at the, the, the papacy. The last three popes have been basically globalists. They've been socialists, globalists, um, and uh, New World Order people. They want to have a one-world uh, economy. They want to have a one-world religion, so to speak. Let's combine everybody together. Uh, they've gone against uh, church teachings. And I'm really surprised this one hasn't been kicked out, and there's been people talking about it at high levels. But what are you going to do? What are you going to do on that? I don't know. Um, one person was, was telling me a lot of stuff about it, and I said, why don't you write a counterpiece, a counterarticle, and you can talk about the Pope as maybe the false prophet that rises up. And um, I don't know what to think of him except that uh, I don't think he's is the Pope Catholic. No, I don't think he is. Not by normal Catholic doctrine. He's not. Yes. So we've got... The Catholic Church in disarray. There's a lot of people that are very sad to see the things going on there, doctrinally and otherwise. All of the um, problems with child molestation. And uh, Malachi Martin, who used to teach at the Pontifical uh, Academy in Rome, uh, said that uh, he quoted one of the previous popes back in his day, 
basically said that uh, the smoke of Satan has filled the temple, and That's that true. there were satanic rites going on within yeah. the church. And uh, a lot of the kids that have been uh, victims of mind control experiments and the Illuminati uh, kids that were that have witnessed satanic rituals in the bowels of the Vatican and uh, partook of the child sacrifice, and they were made to partake in it. Uh, scarred, fragmented souls um, that have been able to step away from it and comment on it at the risk of their own lives. My hat's off to them. I've heard enough of it. kind of make me sick at my stomach, but, you know, that's the kind of the world we live in. That pedophile ring is it's rampant around the globe, but from the king and queen of England to Hollywood and Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and the, the little men on the, the street corners or at the 7-Elevens on the road, truck drivers that pick up the child prostitutes, I mean, the snuff videos, it's absolutely sickening. So, yeah, really we've taught ourselves in the pit. Uh, Christianity has become uh, me-oriented. It's become hedonistic, materialistic. It's become emotion-laden. Um, there's no talk about sin or real repentance. Uh, doctrine is out the window. We don't talk about doctrine anymore. Doctrine's whatever your favorite preacher says it is, and you don't question it. You don't think. There's no critical thinking going on. Um, and just blind allegiances deeply felt, and it's it's a sad state of affairs. It and is. It is. It, it, it's sad to see so many. Right, and it's sad to see so many gullible people out there that just buy into oh, everything. Sure. Yeah, and, it's sad. Uh, I, I beat my head against a brick wall trying to talk to some of these people, and being uh, <laughs> being like yourself, sometimes you 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 want to shake them, and uh, the only way you can do that is verbally. And uh, you know, I sometimes find myself uh, very frustrated though because you can't get people to think. You really you can't. The water. Yes. It's, it really, it's very, very frustrating for me. Uh, it's, St. Paul basically called it, uh, the end times, there would be a great apostasy, a falling away from the original faith, and I think the world there now. So, the synchronicity of all of the world events, the global wars, the famines, the earthquakes, um, you have all of the immorality, uh, that is now celebrated where it used to be hidden and quietly talked about. Now it's openly celebrated. Right is wrong, wrong is right, up is down. Everything's been turned on its head. Uh, the Middle East wars uh, threatened to, to blow up at any moment. You have the economies on the brink, um, and you have a couple of extra things on top of that. The Bible talks about when the Antichrist uh, comes back to life, that there's an image made. And the image is given the ability to speak. It comes to life. I and mean, we've got that now. We've got, we've got sex dolls that do almost as much. I know. It's um, incredible, really. We are starting to see family and marriage. That sort of thing is just really going away in Japan. Men over yes. there are not getting married. They are fooling around with these sex dolls. Quite frankly, they, they want to keep it that way. They are not interested in actual women. Well, it's, it, it's tough to have a relationship. It is. Oh, it really is. So with the AI that's coming out, you have Google and uh, all of the things that they've developed, working hand in glove with uh, some of the alphabet organizations. Um, yes.
Yes, the Alphabet Boys. Yeah, they've got the FBI, CIA, NSA, and all of the others. Um, all of the all of the Big Brother stuff is in place. You have global bankers that have taken control of almost every country. International, you know, the Bank of International Settlements, the central bank of all central banks. They've almost got all of the central banks of the world. There's only about 15 countries that have yet to fold and they get their grubby little hands on it. One of those is Iran. One of those is Syria. One of those is Afghanistan. <laughs> those boys want it all and they're not going to stop until they get it. Right. Doesn't matter how right. they do it, they're going to get it. They, they destabilized Greece, took control of it. They killed Gaddafi, that control of it. Now it's a, it's a hellhole there. Uh, they're trying to destabilize uh, the regime of Assad. They want to take his over. And those are the holdouts, and they're after that. They're trying their best to get control of it. And the guys with the money, the big guys, the Goldman Sachs, all of those big New World Order, New World Economy kind of guys, they're out there salivating because it's so close. They almost have it all, and by golly, that's what they're after. And then you have the digital economy. You have a number of the beasts that you've either got to have the, the name of the beast, a mark, an etching, whatever. Um, it could be an implant in your head or your forehand um, or the number of the name, 666 somehow integrated into all that. It's a digital kind of form of currency. Without it, you're not going to be able to buy or sell anything legally. Of course, there'll be a black market like there always is in times of difficulty. But buying and selling legally, you're not going to be able to pay your taxes. You're not going to be able to do anything without signing up. And you sign up. If you want to sell your soul for a pot of beans, uh, you can do that. You can join the Antichrist. Yes and uh, become part of that system and make all sorts of excuses for it. But that basically seals the deal, and that's not a good thing. My goodness, yes. There, there's so much more to get into, but I'm looking at the time, and we are yes. definitely running low on time. Time is never on uh-huh. our side, unfortunately. Yeah. So, Clark, I, I do want to thank you tremendously for being a part of the program. I, I wish I could talk to you for another hour. This has been tremendous, and... I can't believe time just went by so quickly right now. Uh, it's been wonderful. I've enjoyed it. Clockwise, it's been a fascinating discussion with you, and I, I feel the need to perhaps give you the final word before I do let you part <laughs> ways here, my friend. Okay. Well, whether or not Jared Kushner ends up being the Antichrist, only time will tell, and uh, just keep an eye out for him. Keep an eye out for anybody that's like him. Don't allow yourself to be fooled. I don't care if he has a Republican label on him or a Democratic label or a Libertarian. Always look behind the scenes. Always try to be aware that bad guys come in oftentimes looking like good guys. And always question things. Um, If he turns out to be the Antichrist, and I've given you a little heads up. If it's not him and it turns out to be somebody else, at least you've opened your eyes. At least you've started looking. At least you've started questioning. And I think I think we'd be better off if we allowed ourselves to become critical thinkers. Learn how to do that if you don't know it already. Learn what critical thinking is. Try to develop those habits of asking hard questions, taking a serious look at people that are rising up. Um, if you allow others to do your thinking for you, 
lined up at your door, ready to do just that. You were already lost. Um, you're already lost, already lost. So stay tuned. Uh, keep your eyes and ears open. Keep your heart towards God. Um, don't shut them out. Give them a chance. There's more out there than you're aware of, both good and bad. And uh, just make sure you're on the good side. The good, the bad, and the ugly. There you go. Yes, sir. Well, Clark, once again, I do want to thank you tremendously for being a part of the program. It's been a great time with you, and I'm sure we'll do this again in the near future. Well, that would be great, Michael. I'd enjoy it. All right, Clark. Well, my God, my friend, time just flies by here, and it was so great to talk to you. Well, there's a ton of uh, ton of stuff that we could uh, we could spend hours. We could spend hours. But, oh, yes. Uh, Maybe another time. No doubt. We'll bring you back on here again, my friend. You go out and, and get some sleep and rest easy, my friend. Good idea. You do the same. All right, Clark. Good night. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And there he goes into the mist, Mr. Clark Hay. What a wonderful guest. Now it's time to give a little respect for our international listeners out there. I definitely see you out there. These are the current top ten Listeners based on a country, and wow, I'm just always amazed. The top 10 countries, currently number one, not the United States, it's actually the UK, the United Kingdom. They really have been coming strong onto the stream here, really showing their support. Love the great folks out there in the UK. Number two, the United States, and number three, Germany. Guten Morgen to all the great German listeners out there. Number four is Canada. Great people out there. Number five is India. Six is unknown. Wow. I wonder who that could be. Seven is Pakistan. Eight is Poland. Nine is Iran. And ten, Australia. Great, great folks out there. I don't think I've ever met an Australian I didn't like. All the people out there are just fantastic. And, of course, don't forget our friends over at the LNM Radio Network. Go check them out. And, of course, you can call them up at 701-719-9704. You can actually hit that number up and listen to the stream. And, of course, if you're listening to this on a replay, keep in mind, you can listen in every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 11 p.m. Eastern Time on the TuneIn Radio app. My God. And if you enjoy this program and want to help keep funding this program, which some of you already do, you can go to michaeldeacon.com, and on the right-hand side of your screen, hit the little donate button there. Any amount would be fantastic. I'm Michael Deacon. Thanks for listening. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. we got to put a best of on Drew. We're going to lose every station we have. This thing sucks. Who is your daddy, and what does he do? End of day. The freedom of speech is being taken away. End of day. The judgment day. The end of the world. If you don't, my friend.